podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This colossal three-part episode of the Man in Juju podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, who are the leaders in men's below-the-waist grooming. You can get 20% off and free shipping with the code MANAGINGMADRID at manscaped.com. And as always, for these post-game shows, we like to give out Manscaped Man of the Match awards. And today, Matt Wiltsey is here, and he's going to help me give out the award. So Matt Wiltsey, who wins today's Manscaped Man of the Match award? So the young lads are in the know, and they're in the know about what's trending. And so Andre Lunin and Rodrigo Goes earned the Manscaped Man of the Match awards today. They clearly clearly used the new Manscaped deodorant and body spray and lip balm. So credit to those two, the two young lads. They, they got the job done today. Listeners, if you want to perform like Andre Lunin and Rodrigo, then go over to manscaped.com and use code MANAGINGMADRID for 20% off and free shipping. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code MANAGINGMADRID at manscaped.com. Your balls will thank you. This episode is also brought to you by The Guild. That's G-U-I-L-D, The Guild. The Guild are proud sponsors of the Managing Madrid Podcast World Tour, which just wrapped up in Mumbai yesterday. That's coming up on part three of this podcast. The Guild has roomy tech-enabled apartments offering up to 1,600 square feet of space to live, work, and play, plus bespoke luxury amenities like locally roasted coffee, plant-based scoa bath products, luxury parachute linens, tough-and-needle mattresses, and Crosley Record Players. Book your stay at The Guild over on theguild.co. You won't be disappointed, and they have locations all over the United States, including Dallas, Miami, Cincinnati, Denver, and San Antonio. Go book your stay at The Guild. That's theguild.co. Thank you for sponsoring the show. Coming up is a three-part podcast. Part one is the post-game show for the Cotties game. Part two is the post-game show for the Real Madrid Femenino game versus Villarreal, where they qualify for the Women's Champions League. And then part three is yesterday's podcast in Mumbai. Timestamps are in the show notes, and we hope you enjoy it. Let's get started with Derek Ray and Ray Hudson to kick us off. Enjoy. Nice article in the Managing Madrid uh, blog. Wonderful lads that do a great job there. And... Time's ended up almost looking like a 6-3-1. Some very good writing about that on the Managing Madrid website. That's a great podcast as well. Of course, Mary Valverde was a huge part of the equation. Hello and welcome to part one of the Managing Madrid podcast. We've got a big three-parter today, and this first segment is all about Real Madrid's draw with Cadiz away from home, and to join me, Kian Sabani, to break it all down and to go over all the little details and everything you need to know is Matt Wiltsey. Matt, how are you? Hey, Kian. Doing well. Yeah, we're uh, another kind of match that really didn't mean anything, another one, but there's always little things we can take from it. Another match that meant nothing to us other than curiosity of the development of certain players, um, confusion as to why Jesus Vallejo is playing right back, and also a game that meant a lot to our opponents. And Cadiz is a wonderful city, a wonderful stadium. They had a big night tonight that was you know, on the schedule. They had circled it. They were keeping an eye on that Mallorca game that was going on simultaneously, and I, don't, I think... 
when you put the results together, this draw, Mallorca's win at the death, it's not been a great night for them, especially given the chances they wasted, but we'll get into all of that. Um, I didn't even, like, I, when I saw the starting lineup, I, I just didn't really register that Vallejo will be playing right back. I think I just saw the starting lineup, and I was like, I just assumed Nacho would go left back, Vasquez would go right back, Vallejo and Militao would be the center backs. That seems like the normal thing to do. What do you think the reasoning was behind what we saw today? <laughs> I don't know. I think uh, he, we know that Jesus Vallejo played right back a few times at Granada just because they got so thin uh, last season and he was he was required to play there. and He never, never really looked good there. Um, so I wonder if they're just seeing, hey, you know, if we ultimately decide to keep Vallejo or if he wants to stay, like, could he be an option at right back? Like, let's see how he plays in this game. And I mean, that's maybe my only thinking. <laughs> um, not sold. I, I mean, I, I, I just, it just was Well, what do you me. think? I don't have a reasoning. I mean, I saw yeah. some people floated around. There's got to be some sort of reason. Some people floated around that they wanted to get Nacho and Militao reps before the final just in case Alaba doesn't go. Uh, I, mm, I don't okay. know. Um, that actually, to be honest, out of all the explanations, that was probably the most plausible to me. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess there's that. But poor Vallejo. I, maybe like it was just me because like I was enjoying his performances. I think he just looks so uncomfortable at right back and... Uh, you know, it's just not his game. Like a few few times, he had a, he had the option to do something with the ball at his feet from a crossing position or to take players on, and he just didn't look comfortable at all doing so. And obviously, that immediately changed when Carvajal came in and provided us with that outlet. Because even like the rare underlap and overlap runs that Vallejo made in this game, his teammates didn't even just pass him the ball there. They were like, "I'm not sure what you're going to do with it in that position. I don't think that's the best option." Like there was one where. He actually makes a nice run. He's wide open on the right, and Fede could pass it to him, but then Fede decides to shoot from, like, 40 yards, and it goes over the bar. So, yeah, it was a weird one to me. And uh, to be honest, somehow not even the biggest story of the back line because we've got to talk about Eder Militao, which kind of bums me out because, you know, at this stage of the season, you shouldn't really be talking about players struggling, but here we are. So, I don't know. I almost just want to ask you, do you think that's a natural progression to talk about him because, you know, some of the players who maybe were more interested in monitoring, like the Ceballos as the Hazard, they came in later in the second half. But what are your thoughts on the whole Militao situation? Because I said it on Twitter that I still believe in him as a future really good player. And I can't, it would be irresponsible of me to just forget what he's done earlier, like in the first half of the season where he's been so good. In 2022, he struggled a lot. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm okay with him struggling right now to a certain degree because I still think he's going to be a really good defender. But my concern is immediate in that we have the biggest game of the season coming up on the 28th of May. And that's where I'm worried about. That's my concern right now, my immediate concern, because Rudiger is not walking in that door until next season. So what? how do you explain the whole Militao thing? Because there's a lot of, it, I feel like it's just actually getting progressively worse. It's not like one or two mistakes anymore. Well, the things that were going unpunished early in the season are now going punished. And I think the decisions he's making are a little even more erratic and irrational. And because I remember we had a conversation, you, Ohm, and I, and we had a conversation and we said, 
he makes a lot of mistakes. And I, I remember, I remember specifically saying that he, he makes a lot of these little mistakes that are right now aren't going punished, but in a big Champions League game, in the big games, it's going to cost you. And sure enough, like since January, you could argue, but really the last two months, it's been really, really bad. He's just been all over the place. And it, that's, I think that's the biggest concern for me is that like, this isn't one or two games. This is pretty consistent. I would say the last eight games, I, I was taking a look back and it's really been the last eight games that it's just been pretty, pretty poor from him. So yeah, the major concern is sure. We've got Rudiger coming in and, and we've had all these conversations about who, who does Rudiger replace? Do we sell Mendy? Is Mendy going to the bench? Alaba left back, but like, Right now, I think it's pretty simple. Militao goes to the bench. But the main concern everyone has is, like you said, Liverpool. What What's going to happen there? Is he going to be able to turn it on? Or is Klopp going to see some of these, all these games, do the scouting report and make it pretty simple for Salah, Mane, and uh, Luis Diaz and say, just go at Militao. Like Luis Diaz, watching him for this Liverpool team since he's come in in January, he... No, no, forget Salah. I mean, Luis Diaz is the one that, that kind of scares me more. Like he's just, he's a menace and he'll be, he attacks that space between fullback and center back. He'll take advantage of that all day between Carvajal and, and Militao. And so, um, that's, that's definitely a major concern. Yeah, Luis Diaz has like that FU factor and also the endless motor. He's just constantly attack mode, attack, attack, attack. You know, I think with Klopp, like, targeting Militao, I, I don't, I don't, the thing with Klopp and Liverpool, it doesn't even, it doesn't even matter who they play, whether it's Militao or Franz Beckenbauer or, uh, or Harry Maguire, it's, it's just like, they're gonna do that regardless of who it is there, like, they just are relentless with their counterpress, and that's what I'm worried about, I'm not that worried about our defense, I, I shouldn't say that, I think we have the capacity to at least zip our defensive lines up, like the way we did against City in the second leg. That was encouraging to me. What I'm less confident about is escaping the press. And I'm worried about Militao's on-ball ability, which I think brings uh, brings the discussion of like... Om and I actually talked about this on the Mumbai podcast, which is on part three of this episode. So listeners can also listen to it later in this episode. But uh, we were just kind of talking and... People were, I think someone asked, like, what does the back line look like? What is the starting lineup? And I initially struggled, I initially struggled to answer that question because I think all of those guys are really good players. Like, Rudiger, Militao, Alaba, you know, you and I were talking about, I think, uh, last week or a few days ago about we both think Mendy should be a starting left back and we like Alaba as a left center back more. And as we were talking about it, you know, it was, it dawned on me that Everyone's kind of talking about should it be Alaba and Rudiger because it should be Alaba or Rudiger rather because they're both kind of left side is left center center backs. But if you ignore the positional aspect of it, if you just take me the towel out now and put Rudiger and Alaba, to me that's an upgrade. And Om and I kind of agreed almost instantly that that would be the best pairing we'd have. Also, from a ball progression standpoint, those are, that would be our best pairing. So it's interesting to see what Carlo does. I also noticed you on Twitter also had a similar remark that it's kind of a no-brainer of who should come out of the back line if, if Rudiger arrives, or, or sorry, when Rudiger arrives. So 
maybe Militao needs a bit of a kick like that. Someone to come in and hold him accountable for his playing time. Because right now, we don't really have that luxury. And, yeah, I, uh, I don't know. Because like you brought up the fact that we had spoken about this earlier in the season. I felt like it was like a monthly discussion on these podcasts. Someone would ask, hey, are you worried about Militao's mistakes? And the general answer would be, yeah, he's making mistakes, but outside of those mistakes, he's been really good. Like, he, it, there's like a... He's like, he was like really, really good though. Like the drop off from his overall performance of the one or two mistakes he'd make a game was pretty dramatic. It was like stark contracts, but he was really good outside that. But I feel like now, outside of those mistakes, he's just kind of filling up his performance with more mistakes. And today was about the worst I've seen from him. Um, you know, you can talk about the penalty we conceded, the way he let it slip there behind him. And then you think about the goal we conceded was it was Militao up really poor clearance and then the ball deflected off him. I'm not gonna necessarily beat him up for the deflection, but I would for the for the, the misclearance. And then uh he just kind of like there was that fifty fifty challenge with Negredo earlier in the fourteenth minute. And he was beat so easily from that. Negredo's a pretty strong guy, but I definitely wouldn't have expected it to be that easy of a duel for him. And that was a problem also in conjunction because Vallejo playing at right back, I felt like those two, they left space between them and behind them. And uh, I think that was just a bad, bad matchup overall. But I, I just don't know what else to say about him other than the fact that I hope that he gets it together for Militao. If he's going to make one or two mistakes, it's going to happen. But at least he needs to be good outside of those one or two mistakes if it's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, hopefully just the occasion gets him in the right mentality, kind of helps him to focus a little bit more, because that's all. Really, I feel like it's mental, and it's just like not making some of these decisions that he's making in-game. Like, they happen in a split second, but what the decisions he's taking are just... You, sometimes you're just completely puzzled as to why he, he, he chose to make that decision. And so I'm hoping that like when the big game comes, the big opportunity, he's locked in and he just has one of those one of those games that brings him back to his best. So on Real Madrid's first goal, because it arrives in the fifth minute, <clears throat> did you feel like it was gonna be a Levante situation or did you it was kind of like a, it was a hot start, right? And my initial feeling was that like, man, these poor relegation teams right now they're going up against us after we won the league, and you think that'd be good for them, but at the same time, it almost gets cancelled out with the fact that we're playing with absolutely zero pressure, and it seems like we're playing freely and out of our heads. Uh, after that, it kind of changed, obviously, but it was a great moment from Rodrigo, who continues to be unbelievable, man. He's so impressive, his what he's done in the last two months or so. Yeah, I mean, Rodrigo is... This is... Would you say it's on par to Vinicius's start to the season? Like how he kind of exploded at the start of the season? Or do you think that's going too far? I feel like Vinicius's start to the season was still better. So <clears throat> in the last 10 games, Rodrigo scored seven goals, won three assists, or had three assists and won three penalties. I mean, that's pretty... <laughs> That's pretty insane. And, like, this run in and itself, it reminded me of the Shakhtar goal that, that Vinny scored, just taking on one, two, three, four, five defenders, getting to the getting inside the box, getting to the byline, and then just making an easy square pass for, for Mariano. It was, I mean, 
sensational. Like honestly, and I, I was thinking to myself, I wonder if he could do that on the right flank. And it's, it's just way, it's more difficult because unless he feels just as comfortable with his left foot, it, you need that when you're cutting in on your other foot, you you can protect the ball better rather than just be being limited by the, um, by the outside line there. So. Yeah. I don't know that he I don't know that it's kind of something he could repeat on the right flank. I still trust his line breaking from the right side though. Like he is definitely our best uh line breaker from oh, the yeah. right side. Yeah. 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 And so I don't know if he necessarily will do something like that often, but the fact that he he has definitely been able to take players on with consistency on the right side is is a good sign. I'm still kind of like where do you stand on the Fede Rodrigo thing cuz I don't really want to mess with our Champions League formula right now because even though our starts of the games have been stressful we have this whole magic thing coming off the bench but I really I really as much as I like Fede and what his contributions have been he's still a better central midfielder than he is a right winger and as great of a ball carrier as he is he can't really he doesn't take players on and go at them with the same consistency as in pure attack winger mode the way Rodrigo can so I'm a bit conflicted on that one, but I don't really want to mess with the magic either. Yeah, I think I think you got to keep with Rodrigo and Kamavinga as your secret weapons off the bench. Just keep that going. I not think so I also, secret anymore, but yeah, yeah, but weapons. Not so secret, but I think um, I also I don't know. I the just going with the Tony Cruz, Luka Modric, Casemiro midfield always makes me a little weary, especially in these big games like I'd rather have that extra extra set along especially Fede he counts as like two and yeah. so um having in him in there and then you can move him into midfield later if you decide to take Cruz or Mulder or whoever whoever out of the game yeah um on that note I actually thought Fede was our best player today I have to like go back and look at I didn't really look at any numbers yet I'll do that maybe on the fly but I just when I was watching the game, he was basically our possession funnel. He was often going more central uh, rather than staying in that kind of right half space and helping fun, uh, funnel our build up. Important in our possession, and I, I just thought he was really good as an outlet. He was moving between the lines, receiving the ball between the lines. His touches were good. His ball carrying was good. I really liked Fede's performance in this game. Yeah, he had four completed dribbles, which was the highest of anyone on the team. I think he had them um, all by halftime, too, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and I, I, it felt like he was just constantly getting the ball um, in that space, in, in between the lines, between the, the midfield and the defense, Cotty's defensive line. And it just felt like he had plenty of room to turn and run at them. And that's where he's at his best, where he can just gobble up that ground and move us up the field pretty quickly. And so... Yeah, I thought I thought he was really good as well, and I think kind of the. I wish we had more. We could see the ball carrying, like actually the the meters like per game that he actually produced, because that I'm sure that would be far and away the highest on the team. Oh, that would be interesting because I think we like we have progressive carrying distance, but as a ranking, but and not the actual distance beside the ranking. Like yeah, that would be interesting. I'm, I I'd be curious to see that too. Um, what else stood out from you from this game? Um, I'm going, like, I think back to just quickly on Vallejo. One thing that was kind of bugging me the way he was defending at the right back position was he was giving Adrisi too much space. 
And so, like, yeah, he was defending. He was moving his feet well. He was defending him. But, like, Idrisi had enough space that he could still get the cross in or he could still get a dribble in on him or whatever it may have been. So I just – this wasn't <laughs> – this wasn't one of the – so now we have five games under his belt, and this one at right back wasn't – for me, it wasn't a good game. I thought he was really, really poor. Um, and you look at the past maps and kind of the position heat maps after the game – Literally, Lucas Vasquez looks like a winger, and Vallejo looks like a third center back. <laughs> so, it, our our shape was really lopsided, and you could tell that within the match. Um, Tony Cruz, I thought, was great. He and this was kind of like a typical Cruz performance. You look at the numbers, unbelievable. I think. Uh, let me pull it up right now, but I think he had uh, 129 touches, team high, 96% pass accuracy from 129 passes. Uh, I don't know if that's right. I got both those numbers, but four key passes and 17 and seven long balls. So, I mean, he was just, that's what you expect from Tony Cruz. Um, he even got, did you see when he got upset with Lunin on that one opportunity? Uh, and I think rightly so. Like there, if that, if there's one critique we can make of Lunin in this game and maybe of his overall kind of attributes, it's, he still has work to do with the ball at his feet. I think he's actually like decent, but uh, sometimes I think he he plays a little rushed or doesn't kind of open, have taken the full pitch to see like yeah. what other options available. Yeah, I agree. I, I guess Atletico was better than it was today, um, and I and I like against Atletico. I thought it was that it's interesting because I would have expected it to be different if anything because Atletico actually pressed us high. Cadiz did at certain points, but also when you look at their defensive shape. They were allowing us to bring the ball up the field. And I actually didn't think they defended well, to be honest. Um, but they also, uh, they attacked us better than they defended us. I will say, I'm really happy that Juan Cala didn't play this game. I, as I told you before the game, I want no business of him just breaking our legs before the Champions League final. Um, surprised not to see Chust? Yeah, I was. I saw, because I was looking at the lineups before the game, and it looked like he was starting, and then... I must have looked at it too earlier before, or before Cadiz's um, lineup came out. And so when the game started, I was like, oh, where's Juice? And he wasn't out there. So I was a little disappointed. We're, uh, clearly, none of these coaches are reading, are, uh, are giving a shit about our loan track or starving for <laughs> <Yeah>. content. <laughs> Give us some content, man. Uh, okay. So on the Lunin point, we can talk about his performance overall. Impressive penalty save. And also, I, I also was impressed that he also got to the rebound really quickly as well to push that out of the way. And then moments later, he also had a point-blank save on a header. So, any thoughts on Lunin's performance? Well, I didn't even think it was a penalty in the first place, did you? I think this, I think the replays made it look worse than it was, but in live time, like, I, I didn't think it was a penalty. I thought you could call it, to be honest, but... I could I could see it being harsh. I mean, it did look like he was going down or like almost looking for the contact, but at the same time, the contact was made. So I've seen it given. Yeah. I've seen it not given. I wasn't too. I was more mad at Militao than the referee in that moment, to be yeah. honest. So. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I thought Lunin was uh, obviously aside from that one blip. I thought he was great. He had six saves total. Five of them were from inside the box. Penalty save. Um, I mean, I thought this was. And actually, Thibaut Courtois tweeted after the game, like just saying, "What a great game from from Andre Lunin," which was nice to see. And yeah, I mean, he's he's. This is kind of I, I 
from the limited appearances I saw from him on loan, like, and from what we've seen from prior goalkeeper coaches like at Leganes and what they commented about him, uh, this is kind of what I expected. Like, I, I think Lunin is a really solid keeper. I, I, I think he's young and he's probably got like erratic mistakes in him here and there and maybe will make rash decisions. But for the most part, he's a really solid keeper. And I just, I, I don't know. I'm interested to see what he wants to do with his future, what he's thinking and what ideally is best for his future. Cause I don't know that continuing to be Real Madrid's backup is the best thing for such a young goalkeeper. Yeah. This is one thing that, um, I think I know a lot of Real Madrid fans will look at the performances of Vallejo and Lunin and be like, hey, this is great. We should keep these guys. They're good backups. But I think the reality is the, the way I'm thinking, unfortunately, as much as I love those two guys, it's like, this is great that we won the league so early. Now we get to boost these guys' value before we send them off on their way. And I know it's kind of sad to think of it that way, but that's what it is. It's uh, that we're boosting their value. again. Now, I, I don't know if you necessarily want to sell Lunin, but... Um, I think it's if if we're going to send him out on loan again, it's good that a team would look at these performances and be like, "Hey, this guy could is a starter." If we're bringing him in, it says he's a starter. He's not a bench player. You sent me the the thing on Slack about the fact that this is the same. Why don't you? Why don't you? Why don't you explain it? Because I feel like you deserve it. <laughs> so Sergio, who's now Caris's coach. Um, was the Real Valladolid coach when we had all those loanies there, including Andre Lunin, who didn't see any time at Real Valladolid. So it's kind of karma or poetic justice that he's the goalkeeper that makes all these saves, makes the penalty save, Mallorca win, Cadiz draw against us, and it's in large part thanks to Andre Lunin. Like I'm not, I'm obviously not rooting for Cadiz. I've been to that city. I love that city. I've been to that stadium. <laughs> But it's just kind of funny that this is how it, it all comes around. To be fair, I think the keeper at that time was Masip, right? Yes. To be double fair, don't take on Lunin on loan then if you're not yeah. going to play, if you don't need him. Yeah. But it's, it's our fault too. It's their fault. It's every, I hate these. When loan sins get, go bad, I we have to like blame everyone, including ourselves, for putting them in that position. Um yeah, the uh, the Idrisi shot he saved in the 35th minute was a 0.55 x on the xG. Obviously, the Negredo penalty that was a, it was a good save too. And uh, there was I for, I forget the one I think it was it the one the header he saved. I think it was also a Idr- uh, Negredo Didn't, header. Uh, Negredo or Lucas Perez, one of them had a one v one too that he saved earlier. That's on. right. Oh, that's right. That was in the first yeah. half, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, this was a this was another encouraging Lunin performance. Um, Asensio, disappointing. Yeah, I mean his number. You look at his numbers after the match; they're not bad. Um, he, I felt like he was trigger happy with. He wanted to take the shot, and okay, that's fine. But then get it on target, or or at least make something happen, like get a rebound so that we can try and get the tap in. Like, none of his shots ended up on target. Um, the big know, one like, was in the 11th minute. Yeah. Where he I was just, point blank and he shot it right at the keeper. Yeah. I don't know what it is with the sense I just feel like the word that's coming to my head is, like, one-dimensional. Like, he just 
doesn't really Very. have that much to his game. Like it's he's going to use all his left foot. He's never going to use his right foot. He's not really going to do any moves. He's just going to run and dribble with the ball, and then he's going to shoot. Like it's just I don't know. I don't. But it's the lack of dribbling ability that gets me. It's yeah. it's that he can carry the ball, but if he has to beat someone 1v1 and dribble through a couple players, he can't do that the way Rodrigo can. And he's also not as good of a ball carry as Fede, and he also can't defend the way Fede can. So it's like that's the thing. Like Fede is a the one thing you can tell, he's just a great shooter. I mean, that's what he is. He's a great shooter. It's like a specialty NFL player who comes in and I know nothing about the NFL, but what I understand from football, is there not like a like you can actually like literally bring in players to one play to do one specific thing and then take You're them off? asking the wrong guy. <laughs> <laughs> Two white guys too. We should know. Yeah. All right. So uh, let's see. I wanted to talk about. Well, before we get. I mean, I don't want to rush it, but I kind of do want to talk about the subs. But what is it that we you, we want to talk about in between that? Um, anything on Mariano? Obviously, you got the goal, but aside from that, there wasn't much else, right? Um, I have not much on him. What would you What would you say about Casemiro? Because I'm I'm doing the player ratings, and I can't even like think of anything. Very quiet. Did. Very <laughs> quiet. Very quiet on the eye test. Um, the only flashball memory I have of Casemiro is, yeah, not that, like he did have like Casemiro's role in this game was like he had a lot of clearances in the box, uh, and just hoofed some balls away when Cadiz were creating chances in there. The only one I remember is that he had this one really terrible pass in the seventy third minute, but it was it was definitely a more quiet Casemiro game in this game. It was just basically game, on in clearance mode. This game was way more chaotic. Than I expected. Yeah. Like there was just so many transition opportunities, um, and even though even though like the XG was only what I think it, one point it yeah it wasn't one point nine that high for either team. But I think it's because a lot of these transition opportunities just didn't end in shots. But like there were so many, it just felt like okay, here come Cadiz. Now here go Real Madrid. Here come Cadiz. Now go Real Madrid. And it was just back and forth especially in the first half. And so I think we got a little bit more control in the second half, but it was way more chaotic than I expected. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it definitely was more chaotic. And I actually thought that suited Cadiz in this particular game, just because of the, who was on the field and uh, and the, the kind of what they needed. They needed some chaos a little bit in this game. Because uh, also we weren't that effective in transition either. There was something you said that just now that I, I can't remember what it was, what it was that I wanted to touch on, but uh, maybe it'll come to me later. Um, any other other starters that we didn't talk about? Um, I don't. I don't think there's really much else <laughs> to be honest. Nine of ten long balls for Casemiro in this game. Decent on the ball, passing accuracy was good. Did you did you already mention Cruz's long ball accuracy? Yeah, seventeen of seventeen. Crazy. Yeah, um, those diagonal balls he hits into the box are just unstoppable. Like he yeah. hit the couple to Asensio, and Asensio just he just received it at the far post. Couldn't do anything within those situations, but the, the passes were incredible. Um, I'm just reading some of Ancelotti's post-game quotes. He says, uh, it's possible that Nacho starts in the final. 
I don't, I don't wow, know. That's really, a big quote. But it, it, he kind of, um, well, the question was like, is it possible? Like, what are the chances of Nacho starting in the in the starting lineup and uh, in the start in the championship? Well, he's final not going to say no chance. So. <laughs> I guess he said yes. There's a, was it like in relation to Militao though? Or was I it... don't know what the question was specifically. I don't, it could have been reference to Militao or Alaba maybe not making it in time. Uh, so I'm I'm not sure. Um, and he also like you know that statement that people ran away with. I think it was before the game that. Fede and Rodrigo will both play in the final. And he asked for clarification, does that mean he would they would start? And he just said <laughs> and he just says he goes, they could or maybe not. <laughs> but they'll definitely <laughs> play at some point. And it's, yeah, I mean we both what I mean I realists expect. I mean, come on, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> I mean when I when I saw him say that, I just assumed that it meant it's the same thing we always see. Yeah. Fede starting, Rodrigo off the bench. That's what happens. Yeah. Uh, he also made it a point to talk about Fede Valverde's shooting and how that's important for the team because he's a really good long-distance shooter. Um, I don't so, think yeah. Fede shot that much, though, besides that one you mentioned. Like, the only one I can remember was that specific one, and he had... Let me see. He ha- Yeah, that was his only shot of the game. That was it. Yeah. And it, that one, that particular one wasn't that good. He didn't hit it as cleanly. He didn't really hit it with his laces uh, and let it uh, dip. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, what else did you want to talk about? Should we talk about the subs? Hazard, I'm sure. People That's, are going to want to hear is, about that. This is what everyone's tuning in for, so our <laughs> yeah. thoughts on Hazard. So, why don't you tell us? All right. So, here's my take, and here's kind of where I sit. I think... I think he played well. I think he played really well when he came in. 25 minutes, he completed three dribbles. He had that one sequence where he cut in and, like, actually looked really quick and agile. Um, But for me, I'm still, like, I need to see that explosiveness come back before I'm on the hazard train. And I don't think it's going to come back because of the injuries and because of his age and because where he's at in his career. And I think we kind of collectively have decided that. I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm very wrong. But, like, it's going to take a lot to to convince me on Hazard again because we've just seen this movie over and over and over again. And so we're, what, three years? Has it already been three years with Hazard? Like, this is (laughs) – it's – I don't know. I feel like it's a little too late. And even, even so, like, it's as good as he was, like, he didn't, did he have a single shot? Did he create a major opportunity? Like, I, I, he didn't turn the game around single-handedly or anything like that. And I think you, I think you should expect that from Eden Hazard, the, the Eden Hazard that everyone used to know and love. Well, the argument now is, that I've seen is that well he doesn't have the plate in his ankle anymore. He that was never the case before. So <laughs> who knows? I mean, it's, I don't I don't trust it, but it it looks like he's staying. So so we have to hope that he can give us some production. And you know, would you? <laughs> how how many wingers do we have next season? Here's the, yes. Here's, Here's the question for you. Does he play in the Champions League final? No, not a chance. Even if Real Madrid are losing? Even more of not a chance. 
Yeah, I don't if think we, have, we already have our bench I don't, spot. One, I don't think he plays. And two, I don't think, nor do I think he should play at all. Like, no, no matter what. I wouldn't even like, be surprised if he doesn't make this squad. Yeah, like, it's just, you can't, I don't think you, it's right to upset the balance of the team at this stage of the season. Like, no, no. Just, I, I doubt, and it's not going to happen. No, Ancelotti has, has not. Yeah, he won't know, do that. Yeah, he is never at all this season. Watch him, uh, watch him. <laughs> Um, pull up this clip days after Eden Hazard scores the game-winning goal in the Champions League. <laughs> well, you wait. If 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 he does something versus Betis, it's going to be intolerable. Yeah, uh, the Hazard uh, season Twitter handle. I've already seen a comp of his uh, of his twenty-five minutes put on Twitter from this game. <laughs> yeah, I'm not kidding. I've seen it. How short is it? <laughs> Nine seconds? Yeah, no, it's like multiple minutes. Does it include his drive to the stadium? <laughs> him walking off the bus. I really like Eden Hazard as a, as a human and as a, as a as a player who one of my favorite non Madrid players ever at Chelsea. And uh, I, I I mean no disrespect to him. I just have seen I've seen this estate for the past three years. So I'm you know, yeah. And I mean just where the where we're at with this team and like we have Vinicius Junior and Rodrigo who are both just have taken taken the mantle in that position and then you're signing Kylian Mbappe who obviously can play in that position it's just yeah Eden Hazard you may be you may be 70% of what you once were and like that'd be really good for a lot of teams but we just don't need it we don't we don't need him two a couple things if if he plays Whatever, I don't know who cares about what happens this season, to be honest. Like, he's not going to be impacting our season now. If he plays really well in the UEFA Nations League, you can either. You, maybe then you can talk about, like, okay, maybe he's. He has recovered some of his old form. But in that situation, I would. I would think the club would probably look at that and say, okay, well, maybe we can find someone who's impressed with him from the Nations League to take him on. Because I still don't... Like, this whole idea of him staying is is not because Real Madrid want to keep him. It's because they can't find someone to take his contract. Well, you're forgetting the other half of it, too. It's because he doesn't want to leave. And so sure. even if we find somebody that wants to take him, if he doesn't want to leave, we're, we're stuck in the same spot that we always are with a lot of these players. Ultimately, if you're ruthless enough it doesn't matter if they want to stay or not if someone brings the briefcase he's under contract so once you sell his contract he's gone it just depends on how ruthless you want to be with it you're saying terminate his contract no i'm saying if someone comes in and buys him he's sold yeah, but he has to agree to it. If he doesn't want to go, then he can't. He's not going. If he says I no, I don't want don't to go think to it works Newcastle, that way. I don't. I don't to, think yeah, it works that way. No. How do you think? Why do you think we've kept hold of Bale for so long? Well, because no one wants his contract. There was other teams that would have taken him. I mean, this is basically In the what past. happened. Think about what happened. Same to... thing with Mariano. Mariano. There was plenty of teams. Benfica, Rial. We even were willing to pay half his salary. He didn't want to leave. Well, now I'm thinking to other cases like Ozil. Di Maria, Redondo, none of these guys wanted to leave the club. We just sold them. Like I think Di Maria did. He ripped up a note that Real Madrid sent to him on the World Cup final day. 
I have to look at the legalities of it, but I mean, you can force a guy, but at the end of the day, if he wants to stay and he says no to like, you can't force him to, you can try and push him as much as he wants, but at the end of the day, you can't force him to go to another team if he doesn't want to go. Yeah. I'm, I don't know. I'm kind of, my brain is melting. <laughs> Think right about now. Mariano. <laughs> All right. Well, let me think about it. I guess I, I don't know. I, I I just I just think that you can you can still find a way to sell them. But it, yeah, maybe you're right. Um, there's a Mbappe quote while we're recording. You want to hear it? Oh sure. Uh, I have nothing to say on my future. End quote. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty much that he says. Um, my future is almost decided. Oh. I will I will announce it. This is it. Okay, I can't say about my future, but you'll know very soon it's almost decided. It's not the right moment, but yes, my decision is almost done. In other words, his decision is done. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> he just doesn't want to say it yet. I think PSG's last game is next Sunday. Is it? I think so. For some reason, I thought it was this, this weekend. but Maybe. Uh, oh, you're right, it was. Uh, no, the 21st they have a game. Mm. Next Saturday is the next one. Against Mets, that's the last one. Um, which is weird. I wonder if we'll announce it before the Champions League final. Oh, maybe. Because I was hoping maybe. to bring the... I, I was really hoping to bring the emergency Mbappe podcast into June and not have it in yeah. May. That would be nice. I don't really want to have it before the final. He should wait until after the final. Yeah. Uh... Okay, so with Hazard, what about Ceballos? Anything on him? Um, I thought he, I thought he was good. I, I didn't really have that much. I thought he linked up well. Um, kind of looked how he's looked, even coming back from injury. I felt like he came back really quick, which was nice. Um, but I didn't have too much else. How about you? Um, not much. But his touches were neat on the ball. I liked. He had that one really nice through ball to Mariano in the 68th minute. Oh, he had yeah, a nice yeah. shoulder drop and shot late in the 92nd minute. That was um, oh, yeah. when Hazard did his dribbling thing and, and found Ceballos. I just just more of like Ceballos is a good player. So yeah, really good player. <clears throat> Want to wrap it here? Yeah, I think we're good. Okay. Uh, this one was a quicker pace. It was intentional because we have a long podcast and uh, just a lot of work to do. So thanks for tuning in. Stick around for part two. It's the last Blancas post game as Real Madrid qualified for the Women's Champions League next season officially. Grant and Olmo break that down. And then part three coming up is the Mumbai podcast that you can listen to, which was recorded yesterday live in Mumbai. Thanks to the Mumbai Pena for organizing it. They were seriously amazing, amazing people, amazing help. And uh, yeah, we will catch you next time. Enjoy part two. Thanks, Matt. Yeah. Before we send you along to part two, we wanted to give a quick shout out to our patrons over on patreon.com slash managing Madrid. Thanks so much to everyone who's supporting the show. There's so many of you now. And as you know, because we surpassed 1000 patrons a couple weeks ago, uh, and now we're all well over 1,100, so it's just snowballing like crazy. So thank you for your support. We're going to give away our signed Cristiano Ronaldo jersey away in five days, plus a few other prizes. And we got more goodies to give away once we hit 1,500. 
But shout out to $10 plus patrons specifically because if you pledge $10 or more, you get a specific shout out on the podcast in addition to getting guaranteed responses to your questions. So shout out to Brandon Alvarez, Willie Reed, Wei Pering, Wamik Jamal, Umar Mahadi, Tyler Simon, Tyler Dixon, Tobias Royal Botcher, Tariq Goftas, Talib Salhab, Tahmid Kalam, Sushank Damala, Sujaiwani, Sumanshu Singh, Shivam Tiwari, Sheikh Atiri, Shamil, Shabazz Sharapov, Sergio Arispe, Santos Solorsano, Samir Z, Saif Mahad, Rishi D, Phoenix, Paulo Fierro, Patrick Diafari, Oscar Barrero, Barrera, Nico Laxo, uh, Nicolas Zapatero, Zubiara, Nicholas Moller, Nick Ribeiro, Nelson Masariego, Muxi Thengal, Mowgli, MJ Diego, Michael Zinberg, Marin Myrtle, Martin Ridman, Logan Stahl, Leon Stavronakis, Kunal Tilakar, Crystal Glass, Kevin Rivera, Jose Cruz, John Fernandez, Jeff Thurston, Jason Fitz, Isam Arabi, Graham Gerard, Gary Kohut, Frederick Antakiro, Frederick Sundros, Faisal Hamdan, S.A. Davisito, Eloy Enriquez, Edward Sossman, Daniel Williams, Christian Toft, Christian Acosta, Charles Williams, Brendan Powers, Brandon Stevens, Austin Fury Erdman, Ashik Bashar, Armand Gashi, Armando L., Anton Zrudenko, Anirudh Singh, Alexis Seniferos, Alex Rose Al, Aizaz Hossein, Adar Zalukovic, Adam Dorsey, Bella Chow, uh, Ramtin Mahrur, Fabian Moreno, and Daniel Smith. Wow, that's the longest list we've ever read. Thank you so much for your support, guys. We love you all. Hala Marid and enjoy part two. Hello and welcome to Las Blancas podcast. I am your host, Grant Little, and we are joined by Ohm as always. And today we're pretty excited. We are going to be recapping Las Blancas 1-0 win over Villarreal. And because we got a little help from our rivals, Barcelona, we have qualified for the Champions League for the second consecutive season. This time we did it in dramatic fashion, just like we did the last time, but we waited until the final day of the season. And it was a bit chaotic throughout in both games. It didn't look like it was going to be chaotic in the Barcelona game, which kicked off at the same time. Irene Paredes scored off a Mopi Leone corner in the 11th minute. Aitana made it 2-0 in the 23rd minute. And then in the second half, in the 59th minute, Van Dongen was sent off for Atleti. So Atleti were down two goals and down a player. But San Pedro got a goal back in the 64th minute, and that's when it got a little nervy because we needed Atleti to lose, and if they drew, it wouldn't matter what we did. Aitana was then sent off in the 90th minute, even scarier stuff, but Barcelona held on. Crazy, crazy, crazy season for them. 30 wins out of 30 games in Primera Iberdrola. I don't care about any of the other 29. This one meant something to Real Madrid, and they won. So thank God for that, and we will get into this Las Blancas game, which um, was nervy and back and forth for stretches and terrifying, but they pulled it out, and we're back in the Champions League. Ohm, how are you doing? Yeah, I mean, it's... It's a strange mix of emotions, like obviously relief, elation, excitement is the word you'll use. I don't know if that's the one for me because I, I think it's just more like, thank God it's over. Like, I, I never want to do this again. Like, the relying on another team on the final day of the season 
the way the game played out was like in one of the most nervy fashions possible. And it certainly ended on an uncomfortable note. But yeah, ultimately, I guess just pure relief that we were able to get it through. And I, I guess in a way, it just kind of sums up the season as a whole, right? Like we we have to do it the hard way, basically, um, which I don't know. After I, I thought that was kind of how we did it in last season, right? Like certainly it didn't look like we always made it easy on ourselves, but that that opinion was proved to be naive this season. We saw we saw just how hard we can make it for ourselves. So I mean, I mean, just to kind of you know support my point, just real quick, recapping how we got here, right? So we defeat Levante one nil, twenty sixth of March, and that's it, right? We think, okay, we 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 did the hard part, right? And then obviously we go and lose to Barcelona in the Champions League, but that's not in the league, and that ends out the month month of March. And with with that one nil win over Levante. Basically, destiny was in our, in our hands, right? Had we gone on to win every single match in the league from that point onwards, we wouldn't we wouldn't have had to be in this position where Atletico Madrid needed to lose versus, versus Barcelona on the final day, right? But what happens immediately after that on, on April 3rd, we lose 3-1 to Sporting Bova. And then we have to grind out 1-0 victories versus Alaves and Rayo. Obviously, there is a Copa de la Reina match versus Levante in the middle of all that, which we won. Then we defeat Madrid CFF 1-0. And then we draw with Valencia nil nil, right? Like even up until that point, that draw that preceded this this Villarreal game, we only would have needed a draw on the final day, right? Right. And so basically, from that position where we'd done all the hard work versus all of the toughest teams, we then ended up in classic Real Madrid fashion versus sides all on the bottom half of the table. Either went to the very end struggling to, to get a victory or we ended up, you know, blowing the result altogether. And so we put ourselves in a position versus the Arial where on the final day, nothing but a victory would, would progress us to the Champions League. So, yeah, an interesting season to say the least. In terms of lineups, I don't know. Like, I don't know if we'd say it's what was expected, but I don't know if I'd say I'm surprised at the same time, right? Because Toril has gone 4-4-2, 4-2-3-1 basically the entire time. Maybe he throws in Maite on the right as kind of a curveball, but he's been pretty standard with this. But I think something we've seen in the last several games where we'd really struggled offensively, I think bar the Valencia one where we couldn't watch that game, but based on the highlights, right, it it seemed like we should have won. Like, we had enough chances. Esther blew big chances. Aslani blew big chances. And that one may have been an exception to the rule. But by and large, in these last several games, right, Part of the problem was we weren't able to create enough chances against these deep blocks. And what Toril was doing at the end of a lot of these games was switching to a back three, playing with wing backs high and wide and getting more players in the center and getting more players into the box and just kind of going with more of an aggressive brute force crossing approach, but also help, that helped us get into the final third a bit better because it just made the offensive balance slightly superior to what we'd seen before. So, yeah, I mean, that's why I'm saying I didn't necessarily expect him to go with this, but I wasn't surprised when I saw, you know, Ivana, Bob's Rocio on the lineup sheet because I, it kind of made sense, right? We were going to face an opponent who was going to do basically the same thing that all the opponents had done post that Barca Champions League match and, and Bar Levante, which was sit off, make things really tough for us in terms of trying to find space, you know, to, to progress and, and go to goal. And so he just kind of went with, what had been working a little bit better than his general formula. So, 
Yeah, I mean, so we had those three in, at center back. Misa, obviously, in goal. Olga and Ateneo were going to be the wing backs. And then a midfield trio of Teresa, Claudio Zornoza, and Maite Rose, with Maite being kind of the number 10 in behind Esther and Aslani. What did you think about that lineup? Is it fair to say that maybe you didn't expect it like me, but ultimately wasn't surprised when you when you saw it come out? Yeah, I'm on the complete same page as you. I don't think we've typically started with a three-back, but we've seen us transition to that, especially when we're in need of goals. And today was a, a day where we definitely needed a goal because nothing but a win would do it. Um, so interesting to see him start with that. I think we'll, we'll get into it, but some of the substitutions and changes that stem from the three-back formation were a bit interesting, but overall I wasn't too surprised. Yeah, I think stuff started to get really weird with the substitutions and maybe even a little bit beforehand, which we'll get right into, I guess. So I would say like first 15 minutes, right? Like really typical of the Real Madrid we've seen, <laughs> you know, I would say like across the season, but specifically in the context of the past few weeks, of the, the month of April, you know, going into to May, which is that it's so slow to start off, right? The pace of play itself is slow. But in terms of our ability to create chances, our ability to progress to goal efficiently, like, that's the thing, right? It wasn't a case of, you know, in the first 15 minutes and in prior games, it wasn't a case of, oh, we're right outside the box and we're putting in a lot of balls into the area. We're applying a lot of pressure and it's just like the final pass is missing or the finish isn't there. What worries me a little bit more with some of these performances is like our ability to even apply pressure in the first place is lacking through significant stretches of the game. And you can put that down to whatever you want to. I don't know if it's any one thing in particular. I think being tired, the fact that it's the end of the season certainly plays a role. You know, there isn't always the incentive to push as hard in the beginning of games, right? You want to be slightly cautious. But this is also part of the fundamental problem we have when trying to break down deep blocks, right? Which we've talked about it again and again. I mean, we'll obviously end up having to to touch on it in in a sense because that's part of the game and it's also happened in a different formation. But, I mean, it's it's similar issues, right? And first, we had one shot, I think, in the first 20 minutes itself. And I think that partly tells the whole story, but I... It's it's like, right, every time we had to, like, build from a goal kick or something broke down and if the Arial were able to boot the ball back back up or they transitioned and lost and we had to restart, you know, inside our own third, like, I just internally groaned because I knew it was just going to take so long to get further up the pitch. But it was those few moments inside those 15, 20 minutes when we were able to get there, sustain pressure, right, and not have to restart all the way back near our goal where we looked a little bit better and we could get things going so what did you see within those opening minutes? I mean, maybe that you didn't like or something that was maybe promising that you thought if we exploited more of this or we did end up exploiting more of that in the rest of the first half, we would have better pathways to goal. Yeah, so for me, the first few minutes in the first half were kind of the shakiest minutes of the first half. Yes, we had a lot of the ball and we were kind of pushing forward, but I thought we also left a lot of space in transition that Villarreal were able to kind of exploit, especially on the flanks because of, like, the three-back and not having wing-backs in those areas um, naturally. But I think that immediately, especially in the first half, I think Athenea was a real bright spot, really taking players on, pulling off some, like, really audacious moves, nutmegs, self-passes, and pushing the pace of play. So I really liked to see that 
initiative in this important game from such a young player. We've talked about how fearless she is. And, uh, like, it's these kind of moments where that really stands out and really can make a difference. But like I said, I really wanted us to tighten things up a bit because, yes, I wanted to have the ball. I wanted to create chances and pin Villarreal back, which I think we saw more of as that half progressed. But we were leaving a lot of space initially, and I think that can be down to kind of not having the spacing right and not being completely locked into a new formation-ish on the final day. So we'll talk a little bit about the spacing, especially the defensive spacing. And I guess what was kind of weird there, but in in terms of like what we were trying to do offensively early on was, I mean, kind of typical, right? And I don't think necessarily the wrong idea, especially with this type of formation where the main withholders are the wingbacks, right? It's different from that 4-4-2 we usually play in that, that we've had complaints about, right? There's a certain redundancy with having, you know, four on the touchline versus a, a deep set block, right? You you can use at least two of those players in more dynamic ways or in different areas to pose different problems while having, you, know, you only really need two to hold the width, one on each side. And that's what we had here. And to a certain extent, it was working in that, having Maite between the lines and having Esther and Aslani threatening the channels or with one of them also being able to drop off in front of a double pivot, like it put a lot of pressure on the center of their block, right? And Villarreal defending in a 4-4-2 pretty much, right? And so it's not like they had the numbers at the back to be able to kind of be able to deal with both at the same time, right? So they, they were kind of having to pick their poison at times and there was space to play these sweeping balls over the top or sweeping switch passes to Olga and Atenea to be able to get into the final third. It's just that, you know, it, it's kind of like, how do you get the balance right? Because if that's what you're going for all, all the time, it becomes a little easier for Villarreal to predict and be able to jump out to those passes and, and stop it. Because then they can kind of cheat on in central areas, right? They don't need to be as tight to someone dropping inwards. And I'm not saying that was just happening all the time, but it did kind of seem like we were just like, all right, let's give up, you know, on what's happening in the center. Let's not be as patient as maybe we need to be, and let's just play those balls in behind. And I guess the act, I mean, the main problem with with it was like the accuracy was off on so many of them, especially the ones going into Olga, right? So we weren't necessarily getting it right. And when that happens, you don't have another avenue to to kind of progress versus a block. Then things can kind of start to slow down. Villarreal has time to, you know, they have time to kill on the ball, which, I mean, they were already time-wasting the 25th minute. Their goalkeeper got carded. Um, you know, for that. And that actually ended up adding, I think, two minutes on to the end of the first half, just solely to that time-wasting action. So, like, that kind of contributed to kind of the slow feeling to the game. And we'll get to Athenea, but I think part of the better spell of that first half started to occur when we were able to get Maite on the ball, right? And I, I just feel like she's just... I don't think there's a way to break down deep blocks in, you know, in a, a tactically sound manner without Maite... You know, and and disregarding the like, and and assuming like drastic changes from a schematic perspective are not going to happen, right? Like, it wasn't consistent, but like it, her influence kind of grew throughout that half. You know, in like little you know sections here and there, and you could just see in the moments where she was able to get on the ball and start connecting with others in in, in tight spaces, the pace of play improved, right? The, the the kind of like movement to pull the dynamic movement to kind of pull people out of position and create spaces improved. And yet at the same time, we were in more control than we ever were. 
right? And, and, and part of it was just when playing those short, rapid passes and just kind of like staying in the same area, right? And just kind of establishing control, establishing your structure in a certain position. It gave time for others to kind of look around and be like, okay, my pay dropped off and she's connecting. Where are the spaces to attack? Like one of the best sequences we had in the first half was Maite dropping off, connecting on the left flank. And then Zornoza has like about like three seconds to look up, see the space. And she attacks the channel, which is untracked because she's making a deep run. And then she flashes a really good cross into the box to the far side. And Athenea like has a pretty good chance. I mean, it, it rises up on her. So it wasn't as easy as maybe you think, but she puts it way over the bar. And that was one of our best chances of the game, right? I don't remember exactly what minute that was. I think it was after the goal, but I think that was just a sign like, okay, if we could do more of this, then we really have a shot of, of breaking down Villarreal in a way that's like, I think, pretty sustainable and repeatable, right? Which is ultimately the point of a tactical system is to give you a consistent way of achieving something. Um, so so that was one part of it. The, the most consistent way we were creating offense was Atenea, right? And and this is not a huge surprise. Just get it to one of the most talented players on the field. She went one versus one and she was incredible. This is one of those games where she was just forcing the issue and almost everything was coming off, right? I mean, I, we, we all know how brilliant she is at this point or how brilliant she can be when she's on her day. And pretty much all of the great chances early on were coming off just solo actions, you know, beating players inside. She had a shot blocked and she was just on fire. Obviously, people, aside from this, are when, when they talk about other players who made an impact, they're going to talk about Aslani in the penalty. But I do think Aslani was the third player who was making things happen. You know, specifically in terms of, I think she was the only one, you know, against the last line, you know, and in more interior spaces, being able to receive and make things happen. I thought it was like a pretty, you know, quiet game from Esther in that respect. Right. She wasn't really that involved. Part of that was she wasn't dropping off as much, which is what we prefer, especially when Mike and Aslani are playing. But even when she got on the ball, she wasn't able to do much in those areas. Aslani, especially when she went to the right, you know, and was like on the side of the box, she kind of figured something out where she was she was able to receive, kind of turn back to go from a wide position you know, throw a little shoulder fake and then like slip in behind the defender, right? And start making things happen in the box. And that was actually a sequence that was part of the penalty call, right? Like Asani does that exact same thing I'm talking about, slips the defender, clearly gets fouled in my opinion. The ref doesn't call it and the ball goes over to the goalkeeper and then Esther challenges for it. And apparently that one was a foul and, you know, whatever, the referee gives a penalty, so I, I think those were kind of my three key players in the first half who basically tell the story of how we were able to improve and get more chances. Am I am I missing anyone? You know, you want to comment on you know Mike Deaslani's performances? No, I think you definitely I mean those are the three that I had picked out as well. I think Aslani, you know, definitely wanted this to be a game that she took control of with it being her last game at the De Stefano. I think we haven't seen her as influential on the turn like this, I think all season for Real Madrid. And it was obviously a good time to step up and do so. I think we've seen her running at back lines, receiving in between the lines, but the way that she would occupy defenders and then turn into dangerous areas and was basically just creating things on her own. Like it was, it was a big time performance for Maslani. I agree with everything you said on Maite and, you know, I've already spoken on Athenea as well. Those three, were the primary 
creators and the primary disruptors for for the Villarreal defense. Yeah, I mean, we don't have that much time, um, but we will, I think, have to do like a whole podcast just on Aslani, like separately. So don't worry if you feel like we don't cover everything about her here. Like, I mean, she she is that type of player. She basically con- confirmed she was leaving. So I think she deserves her own pod. But, you know, I just real quick, I, I think it, it is just fitting in a way that she is the one who ends up being the one to take that penalty and score it, right? Like, she has been the face of the team for so long. And it just feels like she she should be the one, right? She put in her tweet, she was like, she scored the first goal, which is true, but also not true, right? Depending on how you count the Takon years. But if you're just counting when we officially had the Crestoner shirt, she scored the first goal. She scored our first brace. She scored our first hat trick. She was our first, you know, international signing, first Galactica signing. We signed her for moments like these. We signed her to be the face of the team. And I think pretty much every step of the way, she's kind of lived up to it. And her inability to be on the pitch or perform in certain instances, I, I kind of feel like has has not really been up to her. It's kind of been outside factors, right? And that first Akon season, like, we just weren't very good. And it wasn't a team that was set up for us finally to succeed. And, you know, that's kind of a big part of her legacy was kind of suffering through that season. And then, you know, th- that following season, right, like, she she was always playing in a sort of out-of-position role and that she had to be the lone striker. And we all know that's not what she really is. And then this season, obviously, we had all the injuries and yet in a few moments, whenever she's been able to play, she's looked really good. And that was the case today. And I don't know, like, I, I feel like she was really crucial today. I don't know if it was just Apenea and just Maite, whether we would have been able to score or score as early as we did. So I, I really do feel like this type of performance where she so, shows her quality in such decisive ways and then ends up being kind of like the figurehead, you know, on the score sheet, the figurehead of this performance is a kind of a good summary of her time at Real Madrid, right? Like she wasn't the only one who was doing good things, maybe not even the best one who was doing good things, but ends up being the face of it anyway, I think is, is kind of pretty much the, the Aslani story at, at Real Madrid, but, you know, certainly an excellent contributor today. Anything else we kind of missed in the first half? Yeah, I just want to mention super classy move from Ivana, who is captaining the side typically, to hand the captain's armband to Bob's in her last game at the De Stefano as well. I mean, Bob's is a legend, has won it all, has done it all. Pretty awesome to see her wear the captain's armband. And obviously they also had like the TIFO hanging up that said, thank you for everything. Super cool moment. And I'm glad that, you know, the two of them were able to have this big moment at the De Stefano with a lot of fans at, at their final game. Yeah, there was a banner out there and everything for Bob's from Pioneras Blancas, who we all know, um, Miri and her crew. And she was the other, like, you know, um, you know, big name departure on the day. Like, she's a legend in her own right. And um, I think Yash is just joining us now. Um, so... I thought, I mean, she didn't have, I, I don't think, nearly as much to, as do, to do today. I mean, we'll talk about the defensive issues in the second half, but I think her, her kind of story is very much different from Aslani. Like, we talk about the face of the team and we talk about always being under the limelight, you know, always under the pressure to contribute, right? Like, Bob's was, was different, right? Like, very much not one of the first names, you know, I guess 
an, an average fan will think or a casual fan will think when they're following Real Madrid Femenino and was just kind of there to provide a certain sense of stability in the early years, right? Get a proven, experienced player who's literally done it all, you know, one on the international stage, one multiple times on, on the club stage, and just provide a little bit of quality in defense and help us transition to that next era, which I think she did quite well. And ultimately, when it came, you know, to a lot of, like, defensive moments in this game where we, like, kind of were caught out, I think Bods generally did her part. And I think it was kind of also, you know, a good farewell moment for her. And then obviously we'll get to Kasi because uh, she was she's the other one where this is also kind of like a farewell game for her, at least in terms of Di Stefano. Because remember, we have Copa de la Reina games to come or, you know, maybe just one game because we're playing Barca. But right. So second half, I think we kind of get just another little piece of evidence that maybe reveals kind of like a fundamental conservatism to, to Real's coaching, which I'm just saying, you know, from just a pure observational standpoint, you can decide whether you think that's good or not. I'll just comment specifically on what I thought these subs did for the game itself. So Kasi comes on for Tede and uh, Muller comes on for Esther, which I don't really know what that sub was about in terms of like the purpose of it. I don't know if I had an issue with it necessarily, but that was one I was kind of had me scratching my head in the sense that like, I just didn't know why. Um, Maybe it was because Esther was pretty quiet in the first half. Maybe she needed a little bit of rest. Maybe there was something specific that he wanted Muller to do that he didn't think Esther could do. So I don't know about that one. Maybe you guys have thoughts on it. But I think Kasi for Teddy was very obviously, you know, uh, okay, time to become more secure defensively type thing. And I don't think it really worked. I mean, the second half was just way more chaotic than the first half. And Villarreal ended up creating one too many chances that made this game far more uncomfortable than it needed to, right? The story of the first half was, Maybe we didn't create as much as we wanted to, especially in the first 15, 20 minutes. But ultimately, when you count up the shots, when you count up the chances, it was like when Villarreal create basically no threat or minimal threat, you know, shot locations from not the greatest positions, blah, 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 versus, you know, what we created. Okay, that's fine, even if it's not amazing. I thought the second half was far more even. And Villarreal ended up getting, like, chances that were right in front of goal. And so, I don't know, like, this, this I think is part of the issue with the way we can view defense in football, right? Like we just think it's this separate phase of the game, right? Like it exists all on its own. And if you just put more defensive players on, you get more defensively solid. But football is a game where all phases of play are influencing each other at all times, right? What you do in possession always affects how you're going to be out of possession because you're constantly transitioning between the two, right? And I just think with Kasi, like, we just got more chaotic in possession in a moment where Villarreal were going to be a bit more aggressive, trying to first force turnovers in midfield. And I think that's where we needed an extra bit of calm on the ball. And because Kasi was playing deeper than Maite, it was just like we only had on the Zornoza side that sort of control. You know, I, I don't think there was, like, too much of it from Kasi, but there were a couple. Like, I think one of the better chances Villarreal ended up creating was, like, a direct misplaced ball from Kasi. And it's like... I don't know. It just felt like that wasn't necessarily the moment to go for it. And I think it contributed to this more chaotic environment where we had less control. I mean, I don't think that's the main thing, though. I think the really weird thing was how we defended this entire game in a back four, despite playing in a 3-4-1-2 formation, right? Like, Ateneo was not tracking back, and I don't think it was a question of effort. That's never been the issue with their defense. I think it was clearly a schematic thing where Ivana was playing as the right back and it was just 
I, I don't quite get that because especially in the second half, I mean, Yash mentioned it in, in our DM on Twitter, we were getting killed with the switch to our left-hand side. And it was Salma who was just having such a good game down that side. And it was, you know, it was that, and Ivana is like not really being comfortable with managing the space of that. I mean, she is a center back. I mean, we talked about her being switched to left center back, right center back, whatever. It's another thing entirely to make her a fullback. And she was just generally too narrow, you know, when, when she was defending as the far side defender. So it, it allowed too much space to that side. And she just wasn't quite as comfortable one versus one, her, her, her body facing the touchline to try to stop, you know, dribblers you know getting getting by her like her thing is defending space her thing is stepping up you know with her body facing the opposite goal right so it just was really strange to me and it it didn't alter at all regardless of the subs we made and it was just something to real one I wanted like throughout the entire 90 minutes I just be really interested to know why that was the case but I feel like all you had to do the only change you needed to make, at least at the beginning of the second half, was bring Athena, like have her crack back, create a proper back five, and you'll be able to defend that switch much easier. And VRL lose their primary source of creation. So let's bring Yash into this, who joined us right as we were transitioning to the second half. What did you think about that scheme defensively and how VRL were kind of able to exploit that? Yeah, so when I saw the sub at halftime, that was uh, obviously the first reaction was we are going to be a little more conservative and try to see this game out. So that is why like Cassie was brought on. But as you mentioned, like it affected us in other areas that uh, that we didn't probably anticipate before, uh, which is a little, you know, a little unwise decision in my opinion. And then uh, about the defending, I thought... I thought Villarreal were going to score. Like uh, I was, I was completely sure uh, after the 70th minute, the amount of chances and the amount of unmarked space that they have, they had on the uh, on our uh, right hand side where Ivana was defending, it was just way too much. Like uh, multiple times, CNFU was almost found like uh, completely unmarked at the far post, and if 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 she could have kept kept her short low it would have been a goal same happened on the other post as well a couple of times but it was mainly the switch on Ivana's side that uh, we were really struggling to defend uh, because like as you mentioned Ivana is a center back so she she was already always sucked uh, inside so that wasn't really great to watch and obviously like Salma caused us all sorts of problems like she she is a player who, who is great at just going at defenses, going at players and having somebody who isn't really comfortable defending at the touchline because that uh, changes the angle she has to defend in and her body has to move. So that that really affected us. I mean, it, it felt a little weird to, you know, like like you mentioned, we had a back three, but we were still like defending in a back four. That, was, that seemed a pretty uh, weird decision for me. Because it, it didn't really help us uh, in any way when we were defending. And in the second half, then it ended up um, having us lose all sorts of control. Like, uh, I, I have the... I'm, I'm just watching the uh, re- some of the replays and the clips that I had uh, from the game. And it was like the 48 uh, minute or something. Uh, and the same thing happens. Like, it's, it's the switch from the right-hand side to, to our far post. And there's no one. Literally, Ivana is sucked in 
and she she is marking the player she has no she even has no idea that there's a runner at the back post that that is the biggest problem she she isn't just uh, sucked in she has no idea that there's a player making a run on the far post as well so and that that shot could have easily gone in but it went up so we had some luck on our sides but uh, the the subs didn't really help us uh, gain some sort of you know control over the game when we needed to because we could have slowed the game down by having by maintaining the possession better because um, in the second half with with Cassie's sub we lost that control in possession as well because Zoranosa is a risky pass taker we have like we have talked about it the whole season she likes to go for those high risk high reward passes and it ends up uh, creating a turnover on most most occasion when it doesn't come off. And that was the case. Like uh, she was always trying to play a player in behind or do some stuff. And then Kasi was, you know, in two minds a lot of time about where to circulate the ball and how to circulate the ball because Kasi is also returning from an injury. We we have to like consider that she hasn't had that much game time coming into this. While Tere has been the mainstay there alongside Zoranosa. So I think like. Letting Tere and Maite be there together because Maite had a great game in the first half. Uh, so having them be there, we could have maintained and sustained possession much better, and um, probably have the game would have been much much in our control than it was in the second half. That is what I thought. It's a bit of a weird one because, like, it's like the reverse of how we normally see Toyo manage games in the sense that, like, it starts off with like you know. Maybe it's a bit too chaotic. Maybe we need more control. Maybe there's something lacking in possession. And then, like, he slowly starts to maybe adjust and fix certain things with the subs he makes. And I don't, I don't want to say this is necessarily the first time, but I think it's one of the few times that I think, like, it's just he really got it wrong with his subs. And I think it fed into the fact that, like, the defensive setup just wasn't wrong. And I was surprised that he just did not really seek to adjust that, even when we went to a permanent back four in possession, uh, which we'll get to. So I, I think the other thing in terms of Villarreal's perspective is they brought on Ainoa Campo in the 54th minute, who, I, I mean, I think it's fair to say we're big fans of on this podcast. Obviously, she played with CD Tacon in that first season where we were technically Real Madrid, but not really Real Madrid. And you could argue she was our best player to end that season. I mean, she was in such a midfield. She deputized at center back and she just has like a lot of quality on the ball. And I think she just gave a little extra to some of what Villarreal were doing in possession, played some nice passes. And I think that, on top of everything else, kind of contributed to uh, a lot of what we saw in that second half. So that was not the end of the substitutions, nor the weirdness, nor, I guess, the controversy of the decisions, although I'm not quite sure how the majority of Madrid fans do it because I wasn't really looking at Twitter. I was just really focusing on, on the screen and everything that was happening, obviously. So 64th minute, Sophie Sveva comes on for Aslani. And this is where we move to a permanent back four in possession. So it's Sveva left back. Olga moves up to the left wing. It's a 4-4-1-1 and 4-2-3-1, however you want to call it, with Maite in behind Muller. So Muller playing as the, the lone forward up top, Olga on the left wing. And, you know, everything else is how you think it would be, except Sveva left back and then Ivana permanent right back, which obviously is something I find quite interesting given that her being a right back on defense was already an issue. And now you're just making her like a right back in every sense of the word. Like it just, it it didn't necessarily feel like the answer to me, but again, this was more like 
this idea of just going more defensive, right? You have Kasi on the field, then you put Sveva at left back, and you have Ivana at right back. It's like kind of this logic that the more you know defensive personnel you have on the field, especially if you're replacing offensive positions or players or, or offensive players in certain positions, it's just going to make it naturally more defensive. And I think this was kind of the point in time where around this point in time, I think Yash was talking about the seven minute, where things really started to get really tough for us. And part of that is obviously VREL are going to push more, but I just don't think they were doing things that were that different from the first half, right? And I don't think they necessarily had the quality to be able to just force issue and decide the type of game we're going to play. I mean, at this point, it just, it was getting really hard for us to to control the game. The fact that we moved back to our usual kind of high and wide, you know, four, four, uh, two, four, two, three, one. It just it, it just fed into the chaos even more. So, Grant, what did you think about the substitution? Because I, I know you had some opinions on it when it happened in lifetime. Yeah, so I understand the substitution for Aslani, and I can rationalize other substitutions. My issue was taking off both Esther and Aslani, our two most potent goal scorers, and especially because we were playing so high and wide and spamming all these crosses into the box when you take those two off. Your aerial threat in the area is not super great. I know Muller is pretty tall, but I think when you think of aerial threats for us, I think you think Rocio, Aslani, and Esther. And obviously, Rocio isn't getting up into the box unless it's a corner kick. So I have no problem taking one of them off, but I would have liked to see us get another goal before we took both of them off. Obviously, you want to give Aslani her flowers, let her get the ovation that she got, but, you know, I think that the best defense at times is scoring another goal and then playing defense rather than, you know, just sitting back on a one-goal lead because we saw how that played out. It definitely, Villarreal had two really, really clear-cut opportunities. Probably, other than the penalty, the two best opportunities of the game, and if they were a bit more cool-headed and a bit more composed, this result could have easily been a tie or a loss, and I just wish that we would have put our foot on the gas at the start of the second half, scored a goal, and then maybe take your foot off the gas a little bit and defend. Yeah, the thing is, I'm not really opposed to this idea of making aggressive changes to react to a game, but I think it needs to react to something that exists rather than, I mean, this isn't always the case, but at least in my mind in general, react to something that exists rather than you something that you think will come to be. Because... I mean, this is like a very Marcelo Bielsa, um, you know, type opinion, right? Which is that, you know, continue playing the way that got you to the point where you're in the superior position. And I don't know if I'd go all the way. It depends on how you're playing. Like if you're being hyper aggressive and it got you to a point where you're really in a dominant position, it doesn't necessarily mean the, the opposition won't come back and be able to find, you know, holes in what you're doing. But just given the way we were playing, which was, pretty slow in the first place, a lot of ball dominance and really being able to deny VRL opportunities just through being able to maintain possession and having a kind of like slow tempo felt like a pretty sustainable approach to me unless VRL started pressing, right? And if there was a case where we started to see that it wasn't working, it was starting to fall apart, maybe, and I don't know what it would have been necessarily, but maybe VRL are starting to do something that exploits you know, the, the certain scheme that we're doing, which actually would have been the back four, right? Which is why I, I'm not saying I was against adjustments, making things more defensively secure. It's just that the adjustments that ended up happening is what I have a problem with, right? So 
I think sometimes, and, and it's not just real, like a, a lot of coaches do this, right? If they can end up taking the game away from their own team in the fear that the game will be taken away from them, right? Like it's not quite a one-to-one thing, but it's almost like in basketball when you end up benching a player who's on like four fouls or five fouls and like the you know rationale is like, well, you know, if they foul out, they can't play the rest of the game and they end up fouling out the player, you know, just as like a function of what they're doing, right? Like they end up doing what they fear will happen and they end up like playing the player way less minutes than maybe was necessary. Then maybe they could have gone on and played more, right? Like it's, it's kind of like a certain fear of what will happen that kind of takes over maybe a more reasonable decision. Um, again, I think Kirill has largely got it right with substitutions in the past. I think that's been a strength of him. I just didn't see it today. And I think he just, I mean, I understand it, right? Final day, we need to win this. And I, I think he just was like, you know, screw it, we can hold on. And, you know, we did end up holding on, but, you know, we were at the mercy of Villarreal, which is not something I thought we'd say. So we've talked a lot about our subs and maybe Yashi won't have that much to say about this because I don't know how much it changed. But you usually have some clever things to say about what the opposition does, you know, when they make certain substitutions. So in the 74th minute, we had a double substitution where Irene uh, Miguelez, comes on for Lara Mata, and then Estefania Lima comes on for Sheila Guijaro. So those were two changes there. And then in the 80th minute, there was another double substitution for Villarreal. So Olivia Oprea comes on for Beatriz Traves Insa, and then Zara Flores comes on for Nerea Perez. I don't know if you felt that made necessarily a difference for Villarreal, but uh, what thoughts do you have on that, if any? Yeah, so about their changes, I think the biggest impact was having Ainoa uh, come into the game before. The other changes later on, like, I, I didn't feel like they were as impactful, but, like, it was just, uh, you know, doing the regular stuff, like conserving your players and bringing on uh, new players on. But I think that their main idea was to just somehow reach the right half space and then have somebody uh, whoever is playing the wide left position in their 4-4-2 to just attack the far post that was the main idea they, uh, every time they managed to reach uh, the the wide right or the right half space that is what they were doing and uh, it was uh, cnfu i feel i felt like she had a really good game as well playing uh, playing on the wide left position because she was always there to like link up with uh, Salma, whenever she dropped in, so so like Salma, um, I mean, I, I like to like properly address Salma's performance as well because I think she has had a really good season overall. Like I know people caught her when she scored that wonder goal uh, for against Barcelona, uh, but I think uh, overall as well, like for for just an eighteen year old, like she has had decent uh, run in in the final stretch of the season. So that is pretty good. Uh, so Salma is pretty quick. Like we saw that she would drop in. She is tall. She has a nice frame to hold off defenders as well. So she would drop in. She would just play a slight ball out wide to probably CN4 or someone. And then she would make a run back. Or she would drop She would drop in. She would play to the midfielder. Maybe Ainoa or uh, anyone else that was playing in, in the double pivot. And they would just then switch to the other flank. And that is how they managed to like reach our final third and reach the areas that they wanted to target because as soon as they saw uh, Ivana defending on the on the right hand side they knew there would be space I think they they properly identified that it was the execution that uh, didn't really match uh, their plan at the end 
but uh, it was it was a pretty good plan because they were trying to overload one side and then they would switch to the other where there was acres of space and then somebody from the wide left position mostly cnpu would like attack there uh, they didn't do that uh, on the other side like it, it was it was a very specific game plan to like target that side because they didn't generate as many chances from the left half space to the right far post so i think that was pretty cool i think uh, i know uh, i mean as as you mentioned like everyone on this pod is as a big fan of her she she was the solution that we have still not addressed uh, a proper ball playing defensive midfielder who actually showed a lot of promise and improved a lot in our first season so it is always nice to uh, watch her play but also stings a little that we didn't manage to retain her uh, but yeah i i i mean the other changes i i didn't feel like uh, in my notes i don't have much about them significantly impacting the game all that much so the final substitution of the game for both sides was in the 87th minute and this is just Toril just leaning more into what he was already doing which is putting Lucio Rodriguez on Fratania and uh we didn't move to a back five which i thought was interesting Lucio was just playing as a right winger and we were able to see it out and i well, there were like six minutes of uh, injury time as well so there was quite a bit it was it was a really nerving ending i mean that i was just at at that point in time the 90th minute so three minutes after the sub i kind of get sent off and so yeah i never want to relive those minutes again really but uh yeah i thought the one i thought vrio had done so many positive things up until that point i think they really made a mistake in not recognizing that that was a time to just press and i understand they'd worked really hard up until that point they must have been tired they probably are not a team that's really prepared to just spring a really organized press that you know just discombobulates Madrid completely but i think at that point in time all you need is just you know players running at people with the ball and just trying to make something happen right i mean you need a goal and given the players we had on the pitch at that time i think they could have got a lot of success through just like a random haphazard you know real madrid masculino type press and uh, i I mean, I was not disappointed to not see them do it, but from an objective standpoint, I think they missed something there because our backline was Sveva, Rocio, Bob, Ivana, and Ivana's ball playing was kind of taken out of the equation because she was not playing, you know, in the central position. You know, that's always been one of Bob's weaker aspects. Sveva is not nearly as good versus pressure as Olga is, in my opinion. And then the outlet down the right had Lucia up there, and she's not. I mean, her receiving back to goal on the touchline, like I. That's just not really her thing. She's good versus the press when she gets to face play, you know, and make progressive passes and beat players off the dribble. And there was Kasi in midfield. Like, I just feel like force the ball to go to the right-hand side, press the hell out of Ivana, allow the pass down the touchdown. You can force turnovers. But ultimately, we were able to see it out. And uh, we qualified for the Champions League in really nervy fashion. Like, I just... Yeah, like I said, I never want to relive those moments again. So any final thoughts from you from you guys? Any other things you think we should kind of comment on in this match? We'll start with you, Grant, and then we can go to Yash. Hey, this is the Real Madrid way, right? Make it chaotic. Make it um, insane. Have us all biting our fingernails down to the nub, but getting it done. I got to eat my words here because throughout the entire first half of the season, I said there was absolutely no way that we were going to come back from the – completely awful start we had 
but I'm so glad to do this, and I will happily be wrong here because we did it again. <laughs> Dramatic fashion. Pretty awesome that it was Asalani who got the goal. Deep breaths. Deep breaths. We made it, and we look forward to all the all the different rumors, the Euros, and we go again next season to try and continue to close the gap with Barcelona and continue to get better and you know hopefully we don't get Barcelona in every freaking competition next year yeah I mean the same feeling like I, I would rather us not give us heart attack every uh, every game but it is what it is I mean it's a rewarding experience at the end of the day when it pays off but yeah it's, it's ex- extremely stressful in the run-in and it was extremely stressful because also uh, like Atleti were really pushing for it. Like it was the, those final minutes when Barcelona picked up a red card. I was like, oh no, this is not going to end well. This is definitely Atleti are scoring one because they scored after they went down. So I was like, if they have held out for so long, they can finally like push it and maybe get a goal. And if, if they drew, they would have been in. We, we had, they had to lose and we had to win. That was the only way we we could have managed to do it, but it happened. They say fortune favors the brave. <laughs> I don't know about that, but fortune was on our side a little, and we needed that. But it was it was a great turnaround from the team as well after that terrible start. So it's really nice to see. It was really nice to see the players all together, the squad being in cohesion with uh, everything. You know, uh, the squad seemed really happy which was really nice to see. Everyone was playing for each other. Everyone for, was contributing as much as they can. So that was really nice to see. And yeah, obviously, I mean, this is a special team. Like we, we are actually watching history unfold with every single game and every every season that goes on. And being back in the Champions League where like Real Madrid has had a history on the men's side and we are trying to create that on the women's side as well. So that is really cool to see and really cool to experience firsthand. Well said, Yash. And I, I really like the point you said about like the unity, the players playing for each other. I think to end both seasons for the men's and women's side, I think this has been a real strength. I mean, Keon mentioned in the live pod we did in Mumbai about how he's never really seen a more united men's team before. And I mean, we're not nearly old enough for the women's team for me to go on and say that, but it just really feels like we... We all just pulled in the same direction and Toriel came and we played for each other, like you said. And I think ultimately like, that's just a factor that allows you to kind of go through the tough moments and suffer as is Don would like to say and come out of it on top. Um, I guess the last thing I want to say is about Kasi because we bagged on her a bit, but she's one of those also who, who will be moving on. And, you know, like I've had my issues with her and I haven't always thought she should start when she did or play when she did and, and stuff like that. But Ultimately, I think, you know, when it comes to looking about her time at Real Madrid as a whole, like, we need to step back, myself included, and, like, kind of respect, you know, what she did, what she brought. Because in that first season, from the games we could watch and from that shortened season, I think she was pretty clearly the best central midfielder on the team and showed, like, a quality on the ball and defensively that we just so needed. And as we kind of you know, upgraded our midfield and transitioned to a more ball-playing style. Kasi still had her moments. Like, she played, what was it, like every single game last season? If I'm remembering correctly, maybe she ended up missing one finally, but 
he was the most reliable, most fit, you know, midfielder we had last season. And, you know, in a midfield three, I think she tended to interpret her off-ball role well. Obviously, she was really good as a presser on the defensive end. And I think, like, the standout performances from her this season, which has just been a tougher year for her as, as it has been for everyone, was, like, the Manchester City games. Like, she was phenomenal defensively and interpreting a very difficult role in central midfield where she had to end up controlling multiple players at times. And she's one of those, like, foundational pieces that was like, yeah, sure, as we move forward, we need to transition away, you know, maybe look at younger talent, look at different talent. But you need these types of players, again, with the experience like Bob's, you know, with fundamental qualities that they bring, with a certain reliability that they have, to be able to even get to a position where we can say, oh, we need to move on. So massive respect for what she gave us, a player who never complained, a player, you know, who always did whatever she needed to do, sacrificed a lot. And yeah, I, I guess that's all I have to say about it for now. If you guys are wondering maybe, you know, why are we rushing through this a little bit? Where's more of like the, you know, talk about things that have happened throughout the entire season. We will get to that kind of content, you know, in the future, like season review stuff, you know, part about Aslani, maybe about all the departures as a whole and what their legacy is. Cause this end of the season really does feel like a pretty big turning point. We're kind of transitioning fully to the new project. So we will get to all of that stuff. This was really just a post-match podcast. If you wanted more, don't worry about it. We're coming with with extra stuff. Any final thoughts, guys? I would just like to, you know, I would just like to say something about Aslani because, like, her her story is like we might we can actually do just a pod on her because her story with the club with everything that has gone on and her special connection being a Real Madrid fan has been just it's been it's been really heartwarming to see you know because you feel like some some part of you as a fan is being represented at the club she she is a player that actually called the club out for not having a women's team and then to come on uh, be the first signing of the club I I mean I, I have chills saying this to come on be the first signing of the club score the first goal for the official goal for the club, score the first brace for the club, score the first hat-trick for the club, like literally lead the team and put it in the Champions League for the first time. And then again, it was her goal today that helped us in the qualification for the second season. Like, like you can't write a better story than that. I, I, I refuse to believe there exists a better story than that. Being a fan of the club and then you know, being the pioneer to lay the foundation stone and then build the team, be the leader in the dressing room, be one of, I mean, it was not like she didn't have offers from other clubs. She could have played Champions League every season that she toiled with us. Like she didn't have to come here. She came, but she came and she, and she left a legacy. Like if she leaves now, I don't know if if it's like completely confirmed or not. But the message that she tweeted out it did seem like she it was this is going to be her last games, and it, like it makes me a little emotional to talk about her. But like she was Real Madrid's other half. Like if if I would like to put it that way, if 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 we assume that things are created in pairs in the world, I I think Aslani completed Real Madrid Feminino like. You can't talk about Real Madrid Feminino and not mention Aslani ever. Like she, she is, she's etched in the history. She, she is a part of the folklore. She is the folklore of Real Madrid. Like whenever we will, 
in the five five years time when we are you know possibly winning the Champions League, reaching the finals, and doing all the cool stuff, bringing in the trophies. Like she will be the player that actually you know made all this happen by being the first. Like it's it's always gonna be special. So yeah, I mean I I just I don't know if she will hear this or not, but a massive thank you from all the fan base to all the players that you know came us joined us in the first season. It was it's really cool to experience this. Well said again, Yash Grant. Yeah, I mean, I echo all those sentiments. It was after her first hat trick that I wrote a piece that said Real Madrid's history can't be written without Aslani. And, you know, I might need to re-up that article because she just makes it more impossible to just not have those two intrinsically linked whenever you talk about the origins of this club and you know, the the strides they're making and competing with the rest of Europe and the rest of Spain. So it's it's special to see. And it's going to be very strange again. Thank you to Aslani. Thanks to Bob's, Kasi. They all played crucial, crucial roles in getting us to where we are now. But there's a lot more to come. So we are with you guys next for the Copa de Arena semis against Barca, which will be on the 26th of May. And uh, that probably is our last game of the season. We'll see. Until next time, guys, uh, thanks for doing this. It's been a really special season, and uh, we still have more to say about it. Ala Madrid. Ala Madrid. Ala Madrid. Welcome to India, sir. Namaste. Namaste. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm okay, hi, just for your question, my name is Jitesh. I've been a fan of Ramadan for about 20 years now. No one else you paid to see me here. I'm extremely sorry that I'm sitting here right now, but Kian's going to be on later on the Zoom call. I'm just here to uh, ask a few questions to Om, and then I'm, we'll do a quick uh, we'll do a Q&A later on. But yeah, Om, let's start off. Everyone knows you, which is why they're here. But everyone wants to know, how did it start? How did your Maradismo start? What, what was the moment? Yeah, I would say it was about the 2009 season was when, or 2009-10, right? When Ronaldo first came to Real Madrid. I mean, I wasn't a big football fan at the time. Um, initially, I moved to India for the first time, about like fourth, fifth grade, fourth, fifth standard. And I was just vaguely aware of football at the time. And this is when Ronaldo was at United and everyone's like, Ronaldo, Ronaldo support him. And so... I went back to the U.S. for a year, and I was like, all right, let's 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 see what it's about. Let's just see where this guy went. It was Real Madrid, and then I didn't really have TV at the time. My parents were one of those, like, no TV in the household type people. So it wasn't until I, I moved to Nigeria the year after. It's like every Daisy household. Yeah, yes. classic, right? Yeah. So I go to Nigeria for a couple of years, and um, so my dad works for the State Department. And in Nigeria, there's, like, specific housing they built for you. And so... They gave you, like, a TV in each household, and it had, like, 12 standard channels. And so there was no football on. It was all, like, American sports and everything, right? So there was one little, like, restaurant at, like, a particular, um, like, club that everyone went to. It was called the GQ. It had a swimming pool, everything. And I would go to that restaurant, order something because you had to order something, ask the guy to switch on the TV, and I would watch all the big Real Madrid matches there. I couldn't go every time because there was no way my dad was taking me there every single week. But I distinctly remember the 11-12 season when we won the Classical at the Camp Now, the Kama Kama celebration. 
I remember where I was. I remember who was next to me. My dad brought his Barcelona friend from work, and he was depressed as hell that day, which was beautiful. But I, yeah, I mean, I remember that moment because I was terrified going into that match. Right, all I, all I had known in my young fandom up until that point was Barcelona are dominant, the best team in the world. Guardiola is a genius, all of that, and I was like. I don't think we can win because up until that point, it was just defeat after defeat. We had so many close classicals that particular season that were crushing defeats. And so when we won that, it was like a huge moment. I was like, okay, this this is my team for sure. And then I come back to India for the 12-13 season. And finally, I'm able to convince my parents, like, can we have a goddamn TV in the house? So I can watch this. And my dad's like, okay, I don't want to drive you places. We'll get a TV. We'll get cable. 12-13 was when, like, the real fandom started, right? Every single game. So my, my, me watching every single game starts in India at whatever the timing was. I think they were worse back then, waking up at like 1 a.m. or something to watch the game. So people come and tell me, trust me, I know your pain. That's how I started off, watching games that late. And um, yeah, that's, that's when it began, right? It became an obsession, game on game. And then I found Managing Madrid the beginning of the 15-16 season. So, you know, Bleacher Report, right? When they were posting all their pieces at the time, they just you know, post links to all a bunch of different websites. And so I would see Managing Madrid from there. I would click on the link. I'd go there, but I never actually went to the main site. I was just like, oh, this looks cool. And then I saw one article they posted. It was about Odegaard. And I don't know, real OG remembers, like, the real boss, Miran Saric. I don't know if you guys remember, but this was when he wrote. So he wrote an article about Odegaard about how the salary rumors were, bull- were bullshit. And it was the first time I'd seen anyone go into that level of detail to, like, dispel, like, classic media rumors about Real Madrid. So I'm like, okay, let me click on this site, see what it is. And then eventually I found what they, what's called the fan post section, which is pretty much dead now. And I was like, oh, I can post articles. You guys won't believe it, but what I used to do was I would, on a Word document, write what I thought was an article, and I'd show it to my parents, and then no one else would see it, right? So I just went on the, to the fan post section. I just started writing a bunch of stuff. I think I wrote 16 articles in one month. And uh, Lucas emails me, he's like, bro, you just want to do it for us. And I was like, sure, why not? And I was 17 at the time. And I was like, so I was like super excited. I was like, wow, I'm going to become a big thing. And um, yeah, it just went from there. So I started off managing Madrid, final year in India. And then I moved back to the U.S. for college. And I was really excited about that because timing's way better. And I could just schedule my classes around. So I just scheduled my entire college life around the games, making sure that I had classes that, that were free for them. So that... That's basically the journey. Wow, that, that's some journey. That's some journey. I, I think I speak for everyone. We've all had to schedule our life around Real Madrid, and you know, oh, I'm not coming into, I'm not coming to work. I'm not going to college because of that. I think that that's the story of all of us, especially DC fans. Right. So now you, you you spoke about how you spoke briefly about how you got into management and you wrote these sixteen articles. Uh, Sorry, I'm just gonna crack a really bad joke. Don't mind. Did you like why? How did you write 16 articles? Like that's like a, a lot. Like how did you even get that much to write? Like were you did it, did it always just naturally come to you, or, or was this something? Or were you just like so angsty, you were just like tapping the keyboard? So first, it's, it's a lot. Even in, like now, if 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 someone to write that in a month, that's quite a lot. So how did that come about? Yeah. So. Some of them were old articles. About four or five of them were the ones I had stored on my Word document that no one had seen. I'd be like, oh, I can I can post it now. So I just posted right. it. So like there was one I wrote about the 13-14 season. It was like a season review that I could just post straight post straight away. And then I, I like kind of figured out, I was like, you know what, I enjoy this. I was doing some internship at the time. 
I was like, fuck this, you know, I'm just going to spend my time writing the articles when I was doing. So I had all day, every day to write those things. And I was just having a lot of fun. And that was a point in time where writing block was not a thing. I had all the energy in the world, right. day, night. I was like, I can do this forever. And then, yeah, I mean, reality hit at a certain point. I was like, I get tired. I need to pace myself. But when you get started in writing about something you really love, the energy is just there for the first few months. Like, it's like you can't stop. The ideas keep coming. You want to put words to paper. So it was really easy. It was really natural. And I had all the time in the world at that, at that particular point in time. Makes sense. Makes sense. All right. Uh, you're often described as the tactical guy, tactical genius, and I described you that in my introduction as well. Uh, where does this... Because, uh, I mean, we all watch, but we don't really go into the whole that side of it. We, we, we go to your website or your article for those kind of things. Where does that come from? Where does is, where is that eye for detail or the eye for numbers to crunch numbers? To, you know, where does that come from? Where How did you like get into it? Because it's obviously not very easy to do and it's... Uh, so, yeah, how did that come from? Yeah, I mean, it came from, you know, arrogance initially is probably what I'd say, right? It's like, I see the bullshit they talk about on ESPN when I was in India. I was telling you yesterday, (laughs) the guys they had on the 2014 World Cup, right? They had some random dudes who looked like they were like 19 years old talking about some random bullshit. They were saying some Mexican player was better than Neymar. And it's like, come on, like, I can can do better than this, right? And so, I also, I saw, I don't know if you guys know Sam Tai, um... So he wrote for Bleach Report at the time, and he used to do these like short like analysis articles, just putting screenshots from a game. You know, he did analysis from Grealish that I remember a, wh- uh, a while back, and I was just like, you know what, this looks cool, and I was like, I, I can do this. You know, all you have it's easy. All you have to do is just watch the game and write about what you see. And so when I came into managing Madrid, I was like, I'm going to do the tactical review. Kian tells me something. I think he's lying, but he said when uh, he first joined management, he joined a little bit after me. He said that I messaged him and I was like, by the way, I'm the guy who writes the tactical reviews. That sounds like bullshit to me, but that's apparently managing Madrid canon now. So yeah, I just wanted that to make my thing. I was like, that's an easy way to do regular content. And in the beginning, they were really bad. Like I was saying stuff that wasn't that um, analytically sound. It was just what I was seeing. But when you put yourself in a position where you're send your, your readers are in the thousands, right? And they're going to critique you if you say wrong things. You force yourself to get better, basically. It, it's literally fake it till you make it type thing. So I, I was like, man, I need to read as much as possible. I just started reading all the best analysts at the time. So Rene Maric was still was still writing for Spiel. I just dove in, right? You just go in head first. And over time, you just slowly get better. The more you write, the more you learn. And then it got to a point where it was like, okay, I, I feel like I have a certain base knowledge that I can leverage now and, and keep going. And so, yeah, and it's, you're always in, in constant progression, right? My, my thing is you need to look back two years from now and look at an article and be like, this is horrific. And I've gotten a lot better since then. So far, I keep feeling that, which means I'm getting better and better. But yeah, it's not something that only like special people can do. Most of the people doing it are like these 15, 16 year old kids who have a lot of time, don't have any friends, <laughs> and they and they just spend all their time right doing this, right? And they're not very good in the beginning. Like people send me their articles all the time. They like give me advice, and it's fine to be bad. You're going to be bad for a while, and then over time, it just it just happens. It's it seems intimidating, but it's really not, and it's not that difficult. You'll be amazed if you just kind of dive in and just start reading, and maybe write some threads or something. Two three years. All of a sudden, you'll really be saying that that things that people respect, and you know what you're talking about. Right. 
You spoke about writing stuff and then going back to it two years later and looking at it and being like, it's rubbish. Is there, what are your favorite shit posts that you, of your own work, because that's not shit on Keanu or anybody else. I, I can do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's do that, because it's more fun that way, right? Well, I mean, you're all great and we all love you and all that, but what, what was the, what, what, give me like the top three or the top two what? or the top five if you have that many bad articles. <laughs> That you've like you've gone in like and you said this is the way it's gonna be and then two years later you're like oh man I was so wrong yeah the top one is so yeah. easy and you can still find it when Zidane was hired I'm like why Real Madrid were wrong to hire Zidane <laughs> <laughs> so I mean that's that's pretty easy and it wasn't it didn't take long it was we won like five nil six nil right and immediately after I wrote my review I was like yeah I was probably wrong and. <laughs> Yeah, so there are people who still hold that against me, obviously, and they're like, this is why you critique Zidane, but I've long moved past that. When you're that wrong, it's really easy just to admit, wash your hands of it, and move on. Um, In terms of other ones, I mean, there are obviously stuff I've got wrong, but I'll say, like, just details. It's more like smaller things, right? For the tactical reviews, I'll go back and look, and it's just like... What I was talking about, the details might have been right, but it was conceptualized wrong. The context behind it didn't make sense. There was a broader kind of picture to hit and stuff like that, and I was missing things. And so it was it was like that. Basically, I would say um, one where I thought I was wrong. I'm cheating here, but I wrote an, I wrote an article about um, this was at the beginning of the 17-18 season, right? And I was like. Something like Madrid are going to surpass Barca. The, the the idea of being the financial situation for Barca was untenable, right? Then we have a disastrous league season. The next season, even worse. And those two years, people were just sending me screenshots of that article of Barca fans constantly, right? And they're like, really? And I mean, it it didn't take a genius to see it, right? It bore out, and we're, we're seeing what's happening now, right? I mean, there are, there are other reasons behind this, right? But part of the reason they have to sell Frankie de Jong is because they need money, right? They lost Messi because they need money. It didn't take a genius to see it, but... That, that's another thing, right, is how do you know when you're wrong, when to admit it and move on, is like an underrated thing about writing for the public, right? Because the Zidane thing, I was wrong, like just admit it, move on. But sometimes it may take a while for what you say to, to pan out, and you, you have to be honest with yourself. Did I like my analysis? Was what I saying logical? Is it still grounded in evidence? And for that one, I just had to stand by it because I was like, it's just going to be a long-term thing. And then maybe you still turn out to be wrong, but... I don't know, you, you constantly have to navigate that. Yeah, certainly, because, I mean, you, you've got to be wrong. You, you, that's how you get right, eventually, right? You, um, you also cover a lot of the Femino team, and we were talking about this yesterday, about how he's, you know, he's got more access to the Femino team because Ramari being Ramari doesn't really give access to anybody. Uh, so, yeah, who, what, what's your... We're obviously not... At Barcelona level, do you ever think we'll get to Barcelona level? And B, do you think that we should aspire to get to Barcelona or we should just focus on our thing? Let's talk about the feminine team a little bit. Yeah, we will get to Barcelona level. So, I mean, how it works in women's football at the moment is the, the money involved in terms of the clubs themselves is so low. Like, it does not take much to come in and outspend the competition. I mean, there are some restrictions, like in the WSL in England, there are salary cap restrictions that really hurt them. And it makes them difficult to build a super squad that, that Barca has. So Barca is the one who's put in the most money right now. You put in the money, you put in the investment, you actually care, you will build a proper team, right? The, the, the trick now is with Barca, it wasn't just money, it just wasn't talent. They were able to build a tactical identity that has surpassed anything we've seen in, on, at the club level in women's football, right? They have a certain tactical superiority over other teams who maybe have equivalent talent. 
that's difficult. I mean, that's the whole Barca way, and, and whatever, Real Madrid is not going to be exactly like that. But if we put good coaches in charge, we buy the right talent, we are going to compete with them. It's it's inevitable. And then the question will be, can we catch up to where they are now? Because now they have a leg on us. They, they're the first team in, in history for the men's and women's team to win both Champions Leagues. That was not a record that I wanted Barcelona to have, right? But we came in late. So we're, we're running behind, and I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to aspire to Barca's level in the sense that we need to be that good. But obviously, we're not going to play the Barca way. We're not going to you know, image ourselves like them. But in terms of being that good, yeah, I want us to use that as a benchmark because they're the best women's team we've ever seen in terms of peak performance. So you think we're going to get there eventually? Yeah, I think we're, we're going to get there. I mean, we're, we're already planning some good signings, right? I don't know if you guys know Kadesha Buchanan. Um, coming no, from just to say, yeah, just she's, she's coming from she's coming from Leon, and it still may not happen. But the rumors have been really strong that she's going to sign. She's one of the best center backs in the world. Like that, that's the type of talent we need to be targeting. And um, I mean, season by season, the squad has gotten stronger, and we have we have the money, we have the name brand. It's about just convincing these players that we have the project, that when they come here, they're going to be treated seriously, and we're going to aim for titles, which I think we can do. I hope you're right. I hope you're right. I hope this is not one of those that we need to be wrong about, because I think we need to compete with Barcelona on the Femino side as well. All right. Uh, you want to get Kian in right now, or you want to go go on for a bit? I'm comfortable going on. Yeah, if, okay. you wanna, if, if it's so, like, fuck this guy. Let's no, no, no. Let's bring Kian in. We can do that. No, no. We, 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 we'll, ask, we'll ask a few more questions. No, so because we got a bunch of Q and A, so Q and A, Kian is going to join us via Zoom. It's not ideal, but well, it's, it is. We make the best of it. Um, yeah, what else do you want to talk about? I mean, you, uh, you tell me <clears throat> what, what, what else do you want to talk about? Because I'm asked all my. So, feminine, continuing feminine news. So, I was doing before the podcast. It was not good timing, but the squad list dropped and. On a media level, Real Madrid can do way better with the women's team, right? It's really low-hanging fruit. Squad list, sometimes they don't even release. So they released it now, so I was just on this laptop just posting that. And right before this starts, Aslani posts a Twitter message that's, like, really cryptic. She doesn't say she's leaving, but she says, like, here for three years, accomplish this, accomplish that. And then she has, like, a question mark after, like, moving on or something like that. So... I'm sure if you guys don't know anything about the women's team, you still know who Aslani is, right? She's the most visible player by far. She was the first Galactica signing, and she was huge for us in terms of bringing international attention to the team, right? I've known that she's probably going to be leaving for a while. This almost kind of confirms it. It's sad. She's been a great player. But if you guys are like, is this the end of the team, right? Is this... No, it's... We're going to be fine, right? Aslani barely played this season because she was injured all the time. Last season, she was really good, but she was not our best player. That was Marta Cardona, who was also injured this season. This is just a natural progression, right? So we've had a couple really experienced players who came in in the beginning, like Aslani, like Babette Peter, who is also going to leave. And she, she was multiple Champions League champion, you know, Olympic gold medalist came to Real Madrid. That, they were like the base, like the fundamental international stars who gave us legitimacy move the team forward and now we're transitioning out of that and it's just it's just a natural thing you touched upon uh, a little bit in, in your answer about this about <clears throat> get about you are in a spot where you have to give people replies and you know all of that and you you have some access to reality 
Can you give us an insight what it is like to actually work with Real Madrid? Because Real Madrid, even for us or even for other people, is is a, is a very complex structure, very complex thing. So, what is it like to be a, a writer, media person, whatever you you call it, covering Real Madrid? How much grief do they give you? How much love do they give you? How much respect do they give you? How much do they don't care about you? Just, just, just give me an answer on that. I'm going to have to shit on our beloved club a bit because when it comes to the media Real Madrid is absolutely terrible. I mean, I understand it in a sense because Real Madrid are like, we're the biggest club in the world. We're the biggest club in history. We don't need you. Like, we can just use our own channels to market ourselves. And for the longest time, that really worked, right? And it still works to an extent. I mean, all you have to say is Real Madrid and it attracts people. But social media is different, right? More innovative ways to market yourself as a team are different, and we're seeing in emerging markets. Like I'm sure you guys are annoyed. Most of the fan- most of the people you know in football are United Chelsea fans, right? Where are the Real Madrid fans, right? That's not just going to happen by coming to India or someplace and saying Real Madrid. They're going to be like, okay, you know, who are the players you have? Does it look cool? Give me a reason to support you. And I think that's where Real Madrid slightly falls behind. And so there's just a mentality there, right? So I was, I was. I was telling you yesterday, right? Florentino was elected as the great modernizer, right? That was kind of his his message. That's still his message. And in a sense, it's true, right? With the stadium and, and how futuristic it looks. When it comes to the business side of things, he is the great modernizer. But him and others around him don't really understand media, right? Like the Super League was a disaster from a communication standpoint. What, whatever you think about whether it should have gone on or not, the way he managed it made no sense because he just doesn't under, understand that aspect of, of how you manage a club and so when it comes to dealing with us right they know who we are they know the work we do but they're kind of like do we really need to pay attention to you so that's why Keon is never allowed to ask questions at the men's press conferences right they just decide I'm sure you, you've heard him say this they have five outlets beforehand that never change the manager hates them the club doesn't do anything about it it's like this is it this is who gets to ask the questions and it's like it's such low-hanging fruit just let Keon ask an actual question that people want to learn about and it's going to make people more interested in, in what, in what, in what, what people have to say about what, about Real Madrid discredits Messi because that's an opportunity for Zidane or Ancelotti or for whatever to play games, right? If Kian asks him a tactical question, he can rebut some annoying things about them not having any tactics or something like that, or he can play games with the opposition coach and make them think twice. And, but they're never asked those questions, right? So it's on that level, and then all of it obviously is just exacerbated on the Feminino side because it's smaller. We're doing well, but we could do way better. So the advantage is that I'm actually allowed into the Feminino press conferences. The disadvantage is they don't hold press conferences for league matches. It was It's only for Champions League matches because the Champions League forces them to. So I've done a couple of Champions League press conferences. I've asked the questions in Spanish. I messed up the first time. When I asked my first question, um, it, I changed one word right before I asked the question. It was when Osnar was still coach. He was the old manager before he got fired. And um, I wanted to ask him why the set pieces were not good because we're having a huge problem with set pieces, right? Changed one word. My question was, why are the set pieces so good? And so, <laughs> yeah, that didn't work out, but I learned a valuable lesson. Never change your question in a second language right before you ask. And so I then got to ask um, Toril like two or three times I did press conferences. The last one was the second leg, or the first leg versus Barca was post-match. And uh, they sent me the wrong Zoom link. So I was just sitting there like, when is it going to start? When is it going to start? I translated everything. I'd asked people to help me with the translations. And I had all these cool tactical questions. And then I asked a Barca journalist there. and like, 
hey man, like, has it started? What's going on? He's like, it's finished. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, stuff like that is like, you're the biggest club in the world, and I understand that you don't feel like you need managing Madrid, but I, I would expect the biggest club in the world to be able to send me, like, the correct Zoom link, right? And, and the thing is, the media guys, the actual guys who manage the media for, for, for managing uh, for Real Madrid are really, really nice, right? Kian has talked to them multiple times. He constantly asks them whether he can ask the questions. The truth is, they want to allow us. It's just a high-level policy that's just no. And obviously, these guys can't do anything about it, right? And um, they have a policy with the women's team, strict no interviews allowed. They made minor exceptions. And that, to me, is just like, uh, why would you do that, right? People don't know the women's team, right? Just saying that Real Madrid is not going to be enough, right? You need to market them. You need to let people know who they are. The easiest way to do that is let them do interviews, right? So when I interviewed Carolina Muller-Hansen, who is a Danish player on the women's team who we signed, I went through the national team. I went to Denmark and said, can you give me an interview? And they allowed me, and that's how we were able to do it. So Real Madrid does many, many things well, and we are the biggest club in the world, but there is a lot of growth that can be done on the media side and media relations. They're not, they don't have to be the enemy all the time. Like, we can help you. Even just by doing unbiased journalism, we can help you. Welcome, Jackson. Bring your team in. <clears throat> okay, uh, that's Jackson. He's one of the he's the coach of the Blue Jersey on on your top, so the the, the third division team uh, that plays in the Mumbai district. Also, he's the coach of that. I think he's played. So yeah. so he, he knows his tactics. As well. he, he, does, does. he does. He does. He does. He does know his tactics. He's a brilliant, brilliant coach. They publicly bowl now. Brilliant coach too. So yeah, now um, you ma- you mentioned Fernando Perez. Now a lot of us like uh, Dawood somewhere here as well. So me and Dawood were part of um, the old guard of say Real fans. We've seen the old Perez. We've seen three years of no trophies, and then suddenly Perez comes back. Let's not talk about the guy in the middle because we we will never we will not mention him by name. But when he comes back, he's just found this new fandom. When you know kids call them Papa, call him Papa Perez, and there's always one or two guys in every WhatsApp group who's you know his name is Papa Perez. Um, you call him the great modernizer of the game. What is leaving aside your interaction with the media department and everything because you've already answered that? What is your genuine opinion about Fernando Perez and the way he is currently running the club? And yeah, what's your opinion? So, I think he's one of the best presidents in Real Madrid history, just from an objective standpoint. That doesn't mean I don't have criticisms of him. So, I mean, the the most important thing a president of a super club can do is keep the finances stable and keep them growing, right? That is that is just the backbone of how you run a team in, in modern football, right? And Florentino has done that better than any president since um, Santiago Bernabeu, right? And so, on that end, I basically have no complaints and on the footballing end, look, he's, he doesn't really have a great football in mind, but it's clear that he's improved since his first game, right? Where he understands you can't just sign a bunch of star players, disregard the footballing aspect, and just say, marketing-wise, it'll work out. We hire any random coach, and it'll make it happen. I think he gets that, right? He still has some of that in him, right? Our transfer policy is not necessarily super coherent. He gets obsessed with superstars, right? Bale, Hamez... <laughs> Mbappe, <laughs> Haaland, right? And that's, that's still there in him, but I think he's got a little bit better at delegating 
what Real Madrid do, right? Like, our scouting department is actually quite good. People don't really know this because Real Madrid don't talk about it and there's no need. Again, they're, they're too big. Like, why would they talk about this? But we do use analytics in our scouting department. It's not the same as Liverpool or Man City because they do it to scout for fit, right? They have a grand philosophy, a coach who has a philosophy, and every player they sign. I mean, City aren't as good as this. Liverpool is the best example. They sign the exact perfect player who fits what Klopp wants to do, right? And Klopp is not really in the decision-making process. It's just they have people who understand what Klopp does so well and are smart enough that they see people that Klopp wouldn't have picked out in the beginning. I forgot who it was, but I don't know if Klopp even wanted to sign Salah. I might be making a mistake. It might be a different player, but... I know Salah is a third choice. Yeah, right? So, and the analytics guy were like, no, he's, he's the best one. And, and guess what happened, right? So there's, they're very machine-like in the way they go about things. Real Madrid is not like that, right? Florentino will have his particular targets. But if you think about it, just go back in your head and think about the players we've signed. You know, ones, ones that aren't the absolute blockbuster ones. If they didn't work out here, they worked out somewhere else. Like, Kovacic was having a shit season at Inter when we signed him. Florentino was not looking at every Inter match and like, wow, this is the guy, right? Kovacic, you know, Kamavinga was definitely not a Florentino signing, right? Like, we've made some shrewd... More obvious because we're so good, we don't need to go and get, like, this absolute risky player, right? But we've made good signings. Like, we, we, we don't sign based on fit, which is annoying to me, but I understand it. We sign based on general talent, right? So we're just like, who is good? Bring them here, and the coach sorts it out. Instead of before, Florentino was like, who is good and marketable? We'll bring them here, and the coach sorts it out. So it's easier for the coach to sort it out now because even if they have players that don't exactly fit what they want to do, they're good footballers, right? Like, And I think that's the thing with Jovic, right? Is He was definitely an analytic signing because he was not a player that you watch and you're like, wow, he's like Benzema, he's a technical genius, and he was, his non-penalty expected goal numbers were incredible at Frankfurt. For a club of that size, with that weak of an offense, for him to generate those numbers were incredible. And I'm sure Real Madrid looked at that and were like, we need a striker right now, he's one of the, the, the most available players on the market, let's just get him and see what happens. And he never fit what Zidane wanted to do, he doesn't really fit what Ancelotti wants, and so it didn't work out. But I think that's an example of, of how, how the process works. So, Went, on a, went off on a tangent there, but getting back to the, the, the Florentino thing is, I would say those are the most positive aspects of him, and ultimately he really, really cares about the club, right? He's not like some private investor. He's not like what Ed Woodward or whatever it was at United, right? He's not an, an oligarch from, or he's not, he's not an oligarch, he's not from some oil state or so removed from, you know, what, what the club are doing, right? He genuinely cares about the club. My problem with him is ultimately his ego, right? He needs to be the guy at the center of everything, right? He loves the club, but he loves it so much, he's like, I'm the only one, really, who knows what's best for Real Madrid. And he does some things that come out of that, that if you're going to be one guy with that much power making all the decisions, mistakes are going to happen, right? And he just tends to push through what he wants to push through, right? I'm a critic of of the Super League. I know most Madrid fans have, you know, seen the other side because we got bashed for it. Um... That was a, the way Florentino went about it. His reluctance to involve fans in the decision-making process, his reluctance to discuss stakeholders, and I think that's just an emblem of the negative side of him. In that he just tries to push ahead with whatever he wants. Right? It doesn't matter who's in his way, and that works a lot of times because he's Florentino Perez and Real Madrid, Real Madrid. But it doesn't work all the time. You have to work with other people. You have to make compromises, and that's why the Super League failed. 
in in part, like whether you liked it or not, there could have been a way for sure that it would have been successful, right? Had he involved Real Madrid fans at the beginning or even the socios, because Eduardo, who is a socio, right? You guys have probably heard him on a couple of podcasts. He was like, yeah, we didn't know much about this. We didn't have any decision-making process. Now, he said he didn't care, right? But my point being is it's, it's so just, you know, he can kind of do whatever he wants. And I understand that, right? When you're a billionaire, when you're head of Real Madrid, I think those are just going to be natural character flaws. So, yeah, I mean, I do have some issues with him. I don't think he's a perfect guy. He's going to continue to make mistakes. His coaching hires, I think, is the most, like, regressive thing about him in terms of, um, you know, how you run a club. Like, I would like for us to start hiring coaches in a more targeted way rather than who's available, let's just pick the guy, right? If you go to the coach, there's nothing that links any of the coaches, right? Benitez follows Ancelotti, right? Then Zidane comes in and saves us. Then Lopetegui comes followed by Solari, which makes no sense. I mean, those two coaches are nothing like. Then Zidane has to come back again. Carlo randomly comes back. If we wanted him back, why didn't we just keep him, right? So that sort of thing is, I think that is the one thing he can do, which takes no effort. He doesn't have to go and learn about media or anything. Just think a little bit more about how the coach fits what who we want to sign. And I think that will just make us that much better. But ultimately, you know, I can't agree with the people who are like, and they're not as loud, but they used to be really loud after, especially 12, 13, and 14, 15, was like, Fortino is ruining the club, right? Like, get him out of there. People like Nadal should be president. Okay, come on, right? Right? The simple fact is, Florentino is the best candidate there, there is. There's very restrictive rules in place that kind of naturally make it so. But until we genuinely find a, a better candidate, right, who can prove to me that they're a better candidate, I, I'm okay with Florentino being president because I, I think he runs the club well at the end of the day. Yeah, he's also made it a lot tougher right now. I don't know if you know this, but he's, since he's staying with president, he's made the rules a lot tougher to run for president, which is why he was elected unopposed last time. Um, yeah, so I think should we get Kian now or should we, should we hold, go on? We can bring Kian. We'll bring Kian because there's a bunch of questions and I want to get to all of them because all of you have come from really far. I really appreciate all of you for like still coming out and uh, yeah, so let's let, let's get Kian on. Uh, boss. Yeah, so we've got uh, Q&As written down and uh, we're basically going to go through them if you don't mind. And then Om can answer them, and then you can answer them, and then yeah. So uh, basically, they're, they're sorting into like three, four things. Um, let's start with uh, the UCL, right? Because we're just coming off this huge high. Uh, there's a question from Ajit Abhijit Palve. Where's Abhijit? Hey, Sutra, say hi. Yeah, I know. <laughs> All right, I, you can't see him, but he's he's he's, he's a big guy. All right, so is basically asking, after our three comebacks, how close are you to giving up on analyzing us tactically and just blame black magic? That's the first question. <laughs> I think I really, I always go for Yeah, so uh, I actually wrote about um, whether our Real Madrid DNA was a real thing or not. I mean, it's, it's on my Twitter, if you guys want to see. I think Archil has some trick. He's going to set me up with some question and, and screw me over with that. But... Um, yeah, I mean, there was also, um, I don't know if you guys know Alberto Aguea, I think is how you pronounce his name. He's a Spanish writer. He writes about Real Madrid a lot, and um, you'll have to Google Translate it, but it works fine. Like, he wrote, also wrote about it, and I've linked to it in, in my article, and he wrote about whether Real Madrid DNA was a real thing. I think between those two, we kind of answered the question, and um, the way I'll put it, so the, the line that sticks out to me and what Alberto said was, Manchester City have created a collective intelligence that is superior to everyone else. But he said, Real Madrid have created a collective personality 
that needs to be taken into account. And so basically how I'd say it is you don't need to make it one or the other, right? I mean, it, it makes it more difficult to figure out. And sometimes it's just like, you know, screw it. You know, I'm just going to say it's one thing or the other. But if you really want to sit down and, and try to figure it out, just think, think about the fact they're all factors, right? The tactical element is one factor. Player quality is the biggest factor. But then there's a psychological factor, which is very difficult to, you know, pick apart and figure out what it is. So I, I think that's where you have to be more careful. But that doesn't mean you have to ignore it. Right. I would say just think about in a logical way what what makes you think that Real Madrid have a psychological edge, and you could probably come up with some convincing answers. Right. I think there's a certain self fulfilling prophecy that both Alberto and I talked about. Right. There's a phenomenon where if you just believe it's the case, you will put your, yourself in a position to kind of like make it a reality. Right. And so when you believe you have this special connection to the Champions League, it's going to affect players. Right. These are the types of people who are so superstitious they need to put their left boot on before the right boot and stuff like that. So when you have something that powerful running through the history of the club and running through the ideology of the club, it can be a big big benefit. But the thing to remember is it's not magic, right? When we joke about it, fine, it's magic. But when we actually talk about it, it's not magic. because, And we know that because this didn't always help us and it doesn't always help us. When we were going through the run to get La Decima, it was a huge burden. It would have been way easier on the team if every single Champions League match, there wasn't this expectation that we're going to win the Champions League that season, right? But once we got over the high, we had huge, embarrassing failures, right? Ramos and Ronaldo, two of the clutchest players ever, missed the penalty versus Bayern Munich. What was going on there, right? Where was the psychological edge, right? But once we got over the hump, it turned from something that was this huge problem into something that was like, all right, we figured out how to do it. We're building experience. And now we have kids like Camavinga and Rodrigo come in and they just turn to Benzema, they turn to Modric, they turn to Casemiro, they turn to Kroos, and it's like, don't worry, we know how it's done, follow our lead. And I think that's where that kind of comes from. Yeah, first of all, I disagree with Ohm. I think it, I think it is magic. <laughs> but I, I do think like it's one of those things that's hard to explain. I think Ohm's article actually was uh, a great way of explaining it scientifically even though it's very difficult to do. But if you were to verbalize it and put it into words, I encourage everyone to go and read that article if you can um, after this podcast. But it's one of those things that's so hard to replicate because these mental blocks and these mental barriers exist in different shapes and forms for many teams. For us, we don't have the barrier. If anything, we have a steamroller. We have a tank just going through and breaking down all those, uh, those mental barriers that exist. Whereas for teams like Atletico, for example, in the Champions League facing us, it was like they were shell-shocked. They were terrified of the occasion. Uh, with teams like Manchester City and PSG, we can talk about how, you know, they maybe they choked against us or the way I like to put it is that we actually just went into another gear and bullied them and that, that we can't underrate that aspect and then overrate the aspect that they collapsed. But they've also been going through this mental hurdle in the Champions League for years now, even before they faced us this year. And, you know, to break through that is really difficult to do because keep in mind, we're the only club that's been doing this stuff since the 50s. I mean, it's fresh in our minds now that we're doing it right now. But you go back to Real's history, we have this baked into our DNA. And so to just replicate it and have that psychological edge all of a sudden is very difficult to do because they don't have those decades of either past trauma or past success that has allowed us to get, get, get us to where we are today. Um, but I also think one underrated aspect of that is not, it's, there is a psychological aspect, but it's also the fact that we're good. You know, 
sometimes that gets lost in the shuffle. That we're a really good team. And uh, I was actually before this podcast started, I was I was reading an interview from Alan Kennedy, who actually was playing for Liverpool in 1981 and scored against us in the European Cup final. And that was one of only two times we've ever lost a European Cup final, I think, or, or one of very few times we've lost a European Cup final. He was part of that. And he one was saying, three, like, at that point, none of us really had much confidence because we're going up against the Real Madrid side that has literally a dynasty from the 50s. And then they had a sixth, sixth Champions League title in the 60s. And everyone just expected, like, these guys are just, this is their competition. And it was incredibly difficult to overcome that mental barrier. And uh, so we've had this for a long time. But, you know, we're, we're also good. Anyway, what I was saying with that, my point was, Alan Kennedy in that same interview said that when he was watching that City game, it wasn't just that we were lucky. He's like, I've never seen anybody pin City like that. Like, City were paralyzed in extra time. It looked like they were playing with seven players. That's the stuff we have to be talking about as well. Like, we, 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 we have this ability to go into another year that few other teams have. And I think if you also want to explain it from a tactical level is that, you know, we have this bench mob that comes in after a team has been pressing us for almost 180 minutes and we come in with fresh legs and we totally flip the script. So uh, we're also just really good. And, and to the question uh, about <laughs> next year, do we, do we go for a tactician or do we completely rely on the black magic? I, I think we just double down on this, on the magic because... We, if we get Mbappe, we have Carlos, main management uh, being even more important in that situation, right? You can you can have a, a brilliant tactician like uh, I don't know. Let's just throw a name out there. Uh, oh, who was like a really good tactician? Are you trying to put it on me when I say it and people are like, "No, this guy isn't good." I let, okay, let's just say Tuchel. Who did you say? Or Tuchel? Does anyone? Oh, Tuchel, I, I don't yeah. know if people hate Tuchel here, but. Well, I feel like Tuchel would do a good job here. But so are you saying someone who wouldn't? Let's, let's say like uh, oh, so Harvin. No, Ohm Harvin is. Let's say team. Antonio Conte, right? Let's have him managing Mbappe, right? Really? Yeah, I, I don't know if, if Ohm Harvin, if, if Ohm said Mbappe track back and press, Mbappe would just. Look when I ask Mbappe to provide verticality in the half spaces, he leaves instantly. He just walks out the door. <laughs> Yeah, so I, it's, it's, next year I think it's going to be Carlo's philosophy and ideology. Even though we rip our hair, we ripped our hairs out after the Classico and complained about all the tactical holes. Carlo's philosophy is going to be even more important next year, if you ask me. Yeah, I, I think that's somewhat of an ironic thing, right? It's like the more stars you add, and the more they're of the kind of Mbappe, it's like Carlo's. Um, his positives become bigger and they become more valuable. It's kind of weird to think about when the squad gets stronger, you want a guy you didn't want when the squad was weaker. But like, there's there's different styles of coaching, right? They're like what I call like to call floor raising styles and ceiling raising styles, right? The floor raising coaches are the ones who can make up for the deficiencies in the squad, right? Like think about Marcelo Bielsa, right? He will institute very specific build up mechanisms. He has a man-to-man, you know, simple man-to-man, high high pressing scheme, which I don't think is absolutely necessary, but it, but it's part of his process. And his teams can really overachieve for a period of time, and it's mainly down to the coach, right? But trying to scale that process up to stars who want more freedom, who might be like Mbappe. I mean, we still don't know where Mbappe is going to play. And if he says, "I want to play on the left," 
how are you going to manage that, right? You can't just, as a manager, put your foot down and be like, no, I want balanced spatial occupation and good rest defense, so go and play on the right. You'd be like, the fuck are you talking about, right? So you so so there's a balance that can be had, right? I think managers like Klopp and Guardiola, like they've been able to take their tactical level to very high to, to, to really top clubs and get people to buy in, but, but that's really difficult. And that's why we, we always tend to have these discussions about trade-offs. And I think with Carlo at this point in time, it's mainly like his personality. And when you add someone like Mbappe, that becomes more valuable. It's, it's a ceiling-raising style, right? It's the bigger you get, the more stars you add. You need that social element as well. And whatever we say about Carlo, most of his players have loved him wherever he's going. And if they've had complaints, it's been about, like, at Bayern Munich, it was about the tactical side a little bit and how he contrasts to Guardiola. But look at the way the players speak about him now, right? The way Kamavinga has spoken about him, the way Vinicius and Rodrigo have spoken about him. They love him, Right. And I, I kind of feel like Mbappe will be the same way. Yeah, I'll add one more thing. Uh, I think it, this is not possible if this team isn't absolutely unified. And I, I don't know if anyone listened to the podcast I recorded yesterday, but this I've been watching this team since 1998, and <clears throat> this is the most unified team I think I've ever seen. Real Madrid. If I'm wrong, I really have to think hard about which team would be more unified than this one. Everything that happens at this club, on the bench, on the sidelines, in training, is just good vibes. Everybody loves each other. There's a just there's there's no drama. There's no distractions. Our biggest distraction has been just Gareth Bale, but he hasn't even played enough to, to be a distraction at all. Like you could maybe argue Hazard hasn't panned out and he's been a, a failure from a transfer level, but he's a good guy. Everybody likes him. He works hard. He doesn't complain. And so everything about this team is 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 incredibly unified. And I don't think this all this magic and all these all these wins and these last minute comebacks. It's not possible. The team's not unified. So I just wanted to make that point as well. <clears throat> all right. Thanks for the thank you for your answer. So you already answered a couple of questions people had about Mbappe and where Mbappe is going to play if uh, he comes on the left. The next uh, sort of, I'm going to combine a couple of questions is continuing with the sort of UCL thing. What are your reactions to the English media uh, lauding cities, Premier League and Manchester United's UCL triumphs with late comebacks but deeming Real's 2022 UCL run as lucky or undeserved? Who, I, you already write your name. Whose question is this? What's your name, bro? Ankur. So Ankur's question is basically, what do you what do you reckon of the English media shitting on us, basically? Um, and uh, I'm going to co- co- collab that with Sora Blola. Who is Sora? Hey, Sora. Uh, he asked a pretty similar similar question as to we made a lot of, we've made a lot of comebacks, and main reason is our bench. So do we have a better bench than Liverpool? And yeah, so just cover like just preview the final for us if you don't mind. And what do you make of the English media just shitting on us and saying that oh we're lucky or whatever? Yeah. Can I have one more point too? Yeah. yeah, sure. Like uh, English media is pushing the Sadio Mane narrative for Valencia. <laughs> yeah, the English media is also pushing. I mean, that they always do always, but <laughs> they're they're pushing Sadio Mane for Ballon d'Or because he won African Cup of Nations. Which I don't think, like, I think George Ware was the last guy who won African Cup of Nations, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Yeah, maybe you can help me out with it. I don't remember the last African dude to win or Bolivia because of winning that. So. George Ware, right? Yeah. So that's like, you know, even before half of you know what the average was. Yeah, so um, 
I guess I'll answer the media stuff first. Yeah. I mean, I think this is the good part about Real Madrid not caring about the media, right? Like, this stuff just washes over your back. Even Florentino cares about what, like, the Daily Mail is saying about, like, Real Madrid. Like, who cares? Um, I will say that the, the problem is, is, like, they go too far, right? I mean, and there's, there's a certain arrogance with British media because they are, they are by far the biggest, you know, center for English media in football, right? And European sports just generally, right? So they don't need to go outside of England to really, like, get money, get, you know, views. They don't have to pay attention to any other league because the Premier League is the biggest league in the world in terms of uh, TV views and, and money and everything, right? So there's no real incentive besides intellectual honesty, which, you know, come on. Like, um, so they don't have to, like, they don't have to pay attention to Villarreal. When they say their performance was disgusting versus Liverpool, that's how they genuinely feel because they have no idea what it is like for, for Villarreal to play, where they came from, their restraints as a club and what a job Emery has done to bring them up. So Real Madrid, they'll speak... This is the thing, right? Everyone will speak about Real Madrid and Barca very authoritatively when they don't follow the league because it's like, ah, these are the two La Liga teams we know, so let's say something. And what they say is always wrong, right? So if, if, if there was a balance there, right, obviously there was luck involved, right? Like, that's that's clear, right? When, you know, certain chances don't fall in and then we immediately score the other one, part of that is luck, but it's not the only story... And I really push back against the idea that we were heavily outplayed in every single match. Like, I just don't think that is true as, from an analytical perspective, having looked at the matches over, right? We were outplayed in the first leg versus PSG. And then I don't know how in the world you argue PSG were better than us in the second leg. It was a completely different game. Chelsea was a little bit more complicated because I think we were way better in the first half, mainly because Tuchel got his tactics wrong. And the second leg, they were, I mean, they were amazing. They were way better than us but they couldn't sustain it for long enough. So it was it's kind of 50-50 for both ties. And then in the first look again, City were way better than us, but we were we were just able to score enough to keep it close. And then I think we were better than City in the second leg. And I think the, the thing that people are missing about the City tie in particular, both legs, is we were able to do something that gave us an edge throughout, which was we made the pace of the game incredibly chaotic. There were very few moments where City had the control that they wanted, and that made it that, that made the game more variable and gave us more chances to have moments of luck, right? Now, the press was not amazing from a structural perspective, but it was one of the few times that I felt like it was kind of cohesive, right? Like we tend to press with the winger coming over to join the striker with the center back. It leaves the outlet to the fullback open, and that's how we've been shredded the entire time. The intensity was so much better versus City, right? Mendy was 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 coming forward off the left in the second leg, pressing Walker really well and they still broke through us at times, but it just picked up the pace of the game. City had to move at a higher pace. They couldn't settle down the way they wanted to. And ultimately, it, it tired them. It created moments of transition. And it created an atmosphere that was more beneficial to us. So was there lucky moments? Sure, absolutely. But ultimately, we were able to force City into an environment they didn't want. And I think that was an achievement that's just being ignored, right? So it's way more nuanced, as, as it always is, than the way they're making it out to be. And to a certain extent, I don't want to take it seriously, right? I don't want to respond to what they're saying. But they do. Be, they're, they are able to take control of the narrative. At a certain point, we have to set the record straight, and so that's what we try to do at Managing Madrid. Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, I, I mean, if you look at the six games, right? PSG set first leg, second leg, Chelsea first leg, second leg, etc. Six all together. I think City. We were the better team over two legs. And I don't know why everyone is having this pain body attack of 
cities were better and we were unlucky because it just it's like it's just they're only factoring in like okay from point this this and I've seen the rebuttal to this by the way this is what people say well from this minute to this minute in the first place city were better who cares from this minute to this minute we were better and ultimately when it mattered we won and PSG same thing the one I actually could argue that we to me in my opinion I think it was Fede Valverde who said it too that Chelsea was the most difficult one if it wasn't Fede I apologize I think it was Fede he thought Chelsea was actually the most difficult one out of these three I also thought the Chelsea one was the most difficult one that second leg was pretty tough and the second half of the first leg also I thought Tuchel got some things right but obviously uh, Mendy's mistake to Benzema scoring that, that, that changed the complexion of things but one of, these, one of the arguments that people come up with is like, oh, well, City didn't take their chances. Well, what do you think football entails? You have to take your chances. So if you're not as good as Real Madrid in taking your chances, that means you're not as good as Real Madrid. It's that simple. So if we're going to start blaming ourselves, like, oh, well, if Courtois didn't make a mistake, well, Courtois made a mistake because he's better than your goalkeeper. Or, you know, out Benzema scored his chance. Benzema scored his chance, which... Grealish didn't because Benzema is better than Grealish. Our players are better than your players. Our team is better than your players. Our mentality is better than your mentality. It's that simple. And then we go into this crazy narrative well, Guardiola's tactics were better. I, I, I mean, Guardiola is a brilliant tactician. He got a lot of things right. Um, and I'm not going to argue that he's not a great tactician, but that's not all it takes. And, you know, if you rewind it, it was the same thing that, you know, Poor Atletico, if anyone cares to feel sorry for them, I don't necessarily feel sorry for them, but uh, no, you could have had the same argument with City beat Atletico, and they were on their ropes, they were getting bullied, and they had to resort to shit houses against Atletico. No one really said anything in the English media about that for some reason. So, you know, I, I, I will say, like, English media, every country has their biased media, the Spanish media is not that much better, to be honest. The English media is in our face because at home said it's the biggest production, it's the biggest, uh, in terms, that's where all the money is, it's money is and all that stuff, so there, we also, all of our Champions League, I don't know what it's like in India, but all of our Champions League, the broadcast is the, the English pundits. The other problem is that the, the, the simple short answer to this is also, they don't, they don't watch anything outside of England. Those guys, apart from like the really good ones like Thierry Henry, uh, Rio Ferdinand, I really like, those guys, they actually will watch Real Madrid, Barcelona, and the Spanish team. But a lot of the other pundits, they don't have time because they're generalists, so they focus on the Premier League mostly. And they watch Real Madrid play once, once or twice a year in the Champions League and they come to these wild conclusions like, who was it on? Uh, we don't have to name names, but after it was a PSG first leg, right? Where one of the big pundits came out and said, uh, we should, the away goal rule being gone means that Real Madrid went into this defensive shell. Yeah, no idea. We played that defensive low block against Cadiz like the week before. We didn't play that way against Alcoyano, right? So these guys don't really watch Real Madrid outside of these big champions again. So I think that's also part of the reason why their analysis is a little bit skewed. And uh, someone asked about the Champions League preview, right? Yeah. Yeah, so just to add on, so I'll transition to that. Um, the Atletico game that Kian was talking about versus City, I think the way they approached the second half, the second leg, might have been a little bit of a blueprint for us because that was the first time I'd seen City this season be unable to control the game and not be able to hand pressing, right? Like, I mean, Simeone had to change it, so it went full high press. The buildup was actually nice, right? Like, I kind of like it when Simeone goes attacking because it, it doesn't happen often. I talked about it on the podcast for, for the Derby, and it, it's interesting. And they totally outplayed City in the second half. And I, I, I understand that Guardiola... 
can be more conservative in the Champions League. I've written about that as well. But I don't think he wanted City to have that little control and have to be at the mercy of Atleti the way they did. And what I saw from that, and I think part of this is the grinding schedule they had, was when you make the game fast and if you're just able to press well enough, they can't slow down the game back. And I think that's what we saw in the two legs that, that when we played them. Um, in terms of the Champions League final, I think Liverpool is uh, obviously the toughest matchup we'll have, mainly because if you increase the pace versus them, they love it, right? They have players that can handle that much better than City can, right? So, I mean, I can name all sorts of players, right? They have the front three who can kill you in transition, but I think the important thing is they have safety valves in defensive transition that City don't, right? They have Virgil van Dijk, who I think is the best transition defender in the world right now, right? They have Fabinho, Right, Jordan Henderson can come in and do an amazing job pressing wise, and then obviously the, they're the best counter pressing pressing side in the world. Right, so they've gradually transitioned to more control, slightly slower slower settings under Klopp. But if you turn the game into chaos, they're fine with that too. They're one of the more adaptable teams in the world, and I think they're just a bit better suited for the Champions League than City are. So it's going to be really tough. I think we're going to go in versus, as the underdogs versus them. But that doesn't mean we can't win, right? We have Vinicius versus Trent Alexander-Arnold, which is a good matchup for us. But I think one thing that goes under the radar, because it's not exactly, I wouldn't say it's a, a thing you can use to exploit Liverpool, but it's a way you can approach them, is the way they press. It's this very, narrow, or not press, but this mid-high block that transitions to, to a press. is this very narrow 4-3-3, right? really trying to bait you into the center. If you go wide, they compress the wing extremely aggressively. And there's all this space on the far side that they're not worried about because most players cannot hit an accurate switch enough that long to the other side to exploit it, right? But we have Tony Kroos, right? And there are a few players sometimes when they approach City, that can uh, Liverpool, when they hit that pass, Alexander-Arnold and Robertson are isolated on that side. If they gamble to intercept because they are quite aggressive defenders as part of the system, we're in behind. And that's something that we can definitely exploit, and I hope to see that. So there are things we can do. Liverpool are not impermeable, and um, we've already beaten them once. But they're very tough, and I don't think it's wrong if the English media comes out and says we think Liverpool are going to win. But we, at the end of the day, we have differential quality up front that no one in the world has. I don't know if you guys saw the statistic, but no duo has created more goals because assists than Karim Benzema and Vinicius Jr. in Europe. They're just the most differential duo in the world. So as long as we have those guys playing, at least as long as Modric turns it on, I, I believe we can win. But, but it'll be tough, and, and Liverpool will get to decide what kind of game we play is what I think. Yeah, and, uh, I think watching the game against Tottenham recently, Liverpool Tottenham was interesting because I, I, I feel like Ancelotti may take a page out of that book. And uh, one of the encouraging things uh, from that city second leg was that Ancelotti zipped up a lot of the defensive holes that the team had in the first leg. They were much more compact, and Casemiro obviously made a lot of uh, good differences defensively. And I think. Having seen how we defended City in the second leg, and for, again, the second leg, maybe it hampered our offense a little bit because we didn't get many offensive chances until later on. Um, actually, we did have a couple weeks in, in, on, at the beginning of the second half, and we had a couple in the beginning of the first half, but we defended well. And uh, seeing that was encouraging because I, I feel like that will be much needed against Liverpool because when you see Tottenham defending against Liverpool, they defended Liverpool really well between the lines, and they have so many games which to me is, and I don't mean this as an insult, but it's, in a way it's a poor man's Benzema Vinicius, just because Benzema Vinicius have been the best duo in, in all of Europe this season. And uh, 
they both those both those pairs have the ability to overperform their XG and and score goals from maybe a few fewer chances that Liverpool will generate. So as long as we can defend well and hit them on the counter, there's always going to be space behind Trent and Robertson because if you get that right pass in behind, you'll have your transition breaks. What I worry most about is the press because one thing if you notice about the Liverpool game, uh, the Tottenham game rather, is that Tottenham defended really well, but they couldn't escape their half because every time they won the ball, it was just it was weird. It was like Liverpool enjoyed losing the ball because it would enable them to win it back in a more advantageous position. And so that's one thing we'll re- we really need to figure out is our press resistance. Um, and it'll be interesting because I think Chelsea play Liverpool in the FA Cup final in like an hour or so, two hours. It'll be interesting to see how Tuchel approaches that. Uh, you know, we'll have a look to see if there's something that we can take away from from that side of it as well. But I don't know. Did you answer about in terms of the bench? I think one of the questions was. Was a better bench, right? Uh, I mean, I, I can go into that um, just just to build off what you're saying. So actually, Tuchel was one of the guys who did the the big switch to the far side versus Liverpool. So that's where I got that from. Um, and then I, one one thing I want to add is because we talked about DNA and everything. No one has it like we do at the moment. But Liverpool, if we're going to talk about DNA, Liverpool have good Champions League DNA, right? And they've gotten over that hump. They they won their final, right? They lost versus us, and then they won the next year. And they have a similar belief, right? Like, this is our competition. Even if we have a shit domestic year, we can come in and win. I mean, their, their comeback versus AC Milan is the greatest comeback in Champions League history, right? You've had bigger comebacks, but it was a final, and they only had one half, right? So in terms of that edge, and the fact that, like, Klopp at least likes to think of his team as, like, a mentality monster, right? That's the, it's going to be tougher to have that edge, right? They're not going to be as easily rattled if, if, we, if they go down 1-0, right? They've done it before with this core, and they have the history, even though I think... Ours is obviously greater. In terms of the bench, um, Liverpool's... Who do Liverpool... I mean, they have, like, Luis Diaz, right? They have Diego Jota. In midfield, though, like, I don't know who... I'm probably missing someone, but I don't know if they have, like, real options in central midfield. I mean, they have Nabi Keita, who's consistently on and off, has never really reached the potential that they would have expected him to. And then in defense, I mean, it's not like they need depth, right? Like, Van Dijk, Matip are going to be fit. So... Who has better depth? I would actually say yes. I, I would say Liverpool is one team, unlike others, in that they've mainly relied on key 14, 15 guys to go through a year. And it, somehow it works with Klopp. Klopp's managed to tone down the press. He's, he's avoided the burnouts that he has in the past. And so they, they tend to be a side that actually doesn't rotate that much. Carlo will love it, right? I, I'll, I'll see if he points that out in a press conference. Um... We just have guys who make a difference in, I think, more obvious ways. Like, right, if Keita comes on, it can be a press-resistant monster, he can be a progression monster, but he's not quite like Kamavinga who can just fly in out of nowhere into the box and make something happen, right? Or play this ridiculous pass into the box to create an assist. Fede Valverde, like, his energy, I mean, he can show up. He just, like, he doesn't move. He just, like, apparates into, like, different positions across the pitch, right? And so we have those guys, and then, and then we have... I would say an attack is, is probably where Liverpool have, have the main edge. I, I like our options in midfield better. And defense, I don't think there's really much between it because both Liverpool and Real Madrid don't have... I mean, Konate is, is, is pretty solid, I guess. But other than him, like, we saw what happened last season when Liverpool got their center backs injured, right? Um, attack, I think they have the edge because obviously we have Rodrigo. But 
Luis Diaz is way better than Asensio. I'm sorry. Like, he's just so much better. And Diego Jota is a brilliant player, right? And him swapping with... I mean, if you if he's the starter, then Firmino's off the bench. And while he's not quite as good as he was, he's better than Jovic or Mariano or whoever we can bring on, right? So I actually think it's pretty close. I mean, I, I was just kind of running through the options in my head. I don't know who I missed, Keon, if you can uh, think of anyone. I think you got them all. Um... So I don't know how much to add. I'll just I'll just say I'll just finish by saying there's n- not a single thing that money is better than Benzema at. Like, oh right, not, the Ballon d'Or discussion, not, right? Yeah, that's that's that needs to be settled. I mean, I I, should, I don't even understand. Is, is it just because of the African Cup nations that he's in the conversation? So, I'm, I'm a bit so the way the prize in there, but I, I, I assume that's why. Right? So, so the Ballon d'Or works generally, right? Is it has to come from one of the best teams in the league, right? A team usually that was successful. There are exceptions, like if there was an exception with Messi last season, there was kind of an exception with Ronaldo in 2013. Real Madrid didn't win anything, but he was clearly the best player, right? But generally, right, is people, because it's too difficult. It is a difficult thing to actually go and study every single player. And so it's just, what are the shortcuts we can take? Who are the best teams in the world? Who looks really good? And we'll just pick one from each league and one team and then we compare them and we make it happen, right? And for whatever reason, the media has decided Mane has been the best player for Liverpool this season, right? And he did have the really dramatic Africa Cup of Nations versus Salah. And I love Mane. He's actually my favorite Liverpool player. But if you just compare them statistically, let's start from the beginning, right? You compare them statistically, and I put his numbers up with other Ballon d'Or candidates like Mbappe, Benzema, Lewandowski, and Salah. Mane is just nowhere near Right? He just isn't from a total goals and assists perspective, from the underlying numbers, from chances created, from dribbles, everything. The only thing that's changed from, for Salah compared to the beginning of the season is he's just gone a really cold finishing streak. But everything else, he's still doing really, really well. And when you add it all up, he, Mane just falls. It's not really a debate, in my opinion. Mane falls out of the conversation. He's in a different tier. I would say Vinicius has had a better season than him. I don't think that's particularly controversial. Um... It's basically Benzema, Mbappe, Lewandowski, Salah are the four players who are very similar in their overall production, I think similar in their overall impact on the game, and you can pick between them. Ultimately, I would remove Salah and just make it those three if I was forced to, and I wouldn't honestly be mad if any of those three won. I know, like, I would would prefer it with Benzema, but I think Lewandowski and Mbappe have also been brilliant, but... Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just it's just what they do, right? I mean, when Modric won the Ballon d'Or, he was he wasn't the best player for Real Madrid that season, right? But he he went far in the World Cup. Ronaldo left, and it was like, okay, Real Madrid won the Champions League. They repeated who did well in the World Cup. Let's pick Luka Modric, right? It's just how it works. It could be a lot better, but I think the less importance we start putting on the Ballon d'Or is just better for all of us. Let it happen. We can shit talk about it when we want, but in our minds, that doesn't need to decide who's the best, but we can do our own research and make our own list, right? So, yeah, I mean, I, I think Mane is very good, but it's just, he, it's circumstance, right? Just switch Mane and Salah's season, right? Mane gets hot at the beginning of the season, Salah gets, gets hot at the, at the second half of the season, even though there's no difference really, right? Because at the end of the day, it all amounts to the same. People will be picking Salah, so I, I think it's that simple. Yeah. No, no, no. All right. So we've got a couple more questions, and we open open questions to the floor because I just want to get get rid of these questions that you just sent us. There are a lot of questions about our defense. Uh, I'll just read the question. Our right back is a problematic question. There has been rumors of Reese James, Lamptey, and even Hakimi. 
Um, plus, to add to this, uh, but basically, uh, Karwa has been injury prone. That's that's the first part of the question. The second part is now that we've got um, Rudiger coming in, what is the backline? That's a question from Kunal. Kunal, Kunal, that's Kunal. Yeah. So you asked this question, right? Like, how would you place a defense? That's your question, right? And there is another question about the defense, which is basically we've uh, hold on. yeah. Yeah, we had. So, w- what would be your defense going into next season? Where would Rudiger play? And yeah, and somebody's asked Alaba's impact on the team. Who is this who wrote Alaba's impact on the team? I don't have a name here. You wrote that. Who are playing questions down there? Okay. Arjun's put his own question about Alaba's impact on the team. So, basically, what, what do you make of next year's defense? Yeah, you go ahead. Uh, it's a great question because everyone is um, throwing out these lineups out there with Alaba at the left back and uh, and Rudiger and Militao and Carvajal finishing the back line. And I'm just I'm not on that page necessarily, and I don't I don't really know. Like that, I can I can confidently say that we're going to see a bit of everything because there's injuries and suspensions. You're going to see Alaba left back. You're going to see Alaba in center of defense. You're going to see Rudiger in in the back line, you're going to see Militao, there's going to be injuries, so some people will be on the bench, there's going to be rotations, but the real question is, is like how are we going to answer this is, if it's a Champions League final, every single player in the squad is healthy, who starts? And I'm struggling with that. Like, I wish I had a better answer. Maybe Ohm has a better answer, but I don't know, because I'm not really of the belief that Ferland Mendy should be benched. I understand he has attacking limitations. I also think that he can help us in, in, offensively in a lot of ways. If he does those little simple runs off the ball like he did against Levante, those underlap runs, those overlap runs that just haven't existed this season for Vinicius to take advantage of. And those part of like, let's be honest, like those Champions League games that where Vinicius doesn't have space to work with, and he's still dominating every offensive metric in the Champions League by the numbers. But those games where he doesn't have space, it's because Mendy's not making those runs and drag defenders away from him. So if he's attacking one, two, three players, and Mendy's in a more defensive role. Can we get him to just budge the defense a little bit by making those better off-ball runs? He's one of the best ball carriers in the world at his position. Let's, let's be let's be fair. He just needs to do those things more. But from a defensive perspective, if he's healthy, he is the best defensive left back in the world. And that's why I struggle a little bit um, benching him and putting Alaba there as a left back. I actually think Alaba's best position himself is a left center back role. And now there's another there's another discussion here is is Mendy going through the Carvajal syndrome where he's going to be injury riddled and he's going to be struggling to get fit. Now I feel like he's fit. That the Levante game was great for him and everyone. So it's good to get that version of him, especially against Salah. You, you need that defensive presence against Salah. Um, so the only reason I maybe doubt myself and counter myself is is Mendy going to be healthy? If not, then it's an easier discussion for me that Alba could play there, but. I really don't know the answer. I don't know who you bench in this Champions League final for everyone's healthy. I don't know. Om, what do you got? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say in a back four, whichever way you, like, try to organize it, there are, like, big strengths and big, big weaknesses, right? Like, ultimately, Rudiger is not the perfect center back for us, right? I mean, I really like Rudiger, but he's more of a center back for, for a back three because he's so aggressive. And if you can just unleash him to go out and step up to players every single time, right? And just 
almost be like an auxiliary defensive midfielder in some situations, he's incredible, right? In a back forward, that's way more costly. And the issue is, if we're moving Oliva to left back, you have another player in Militao who's exactly the same. And both of them are going to be rushing up to try to like, you know, play make on the defensive end and try to force interceptions. And if they get it wrong, we're going to be completely exposed. Whereas Oliva was a really good compliment in that he can do a little bit of that, but that's not his game. He's elite at covering space and behind and when Militao goes up, he drops. Right? And it's not like Rudiger's an idiot, right? When Milit- he sees Militao go, he'll drop and he'll look to cover his face. But it's just not in his mentality to, to be that's the thing he's thinking about. He's the guy who goes forward and makes stuff happen. And that's honest, honestly his best trait. You need to find a way to make that work if you sign him because that's what makes him so valuable defensively. So that's the thing, right? I really love All About Left Back. I wish we'd seen it more this season. But a center back pairing between Militao and Rudiger makes me like anxious. Like I don't think I'd be able to sit through a game. Like I mean, more than normal, I would be like I'm really scared about what happens when they when they try to play a vertical pass in between our lines. If you play Rudiger and Alaba together, which I think is a high possibility, you're taking away I think a lot from Rudiger's on ball game, right? Because he's so used to making those driving runs down the lane, down the left playing switch passes, which is actually easier for him if he's on the left to play to the other side, right? The angle is better. The way the ball curves to the other side, it goes towards the opposition goal instead of towards your own goal, right? Like, he has a massive on-ball game that makes him valuable. I don't know if anyone here watches Chelsea a little bit, but Rudiger will always play these incredible passes at least twice a game, which comes from the left-hand side. I think that's more workable. My question, it's just not a guarantee, right? Like, what happens when you put him on the right, and are those dynamics the same, right? Can you get can you get the same from him or something similar is the question. I don't know, but I wouldn't rule it out. I think it's possible. I think you just mainly lose the switch pass, and you can still be a good passer from that side. It would actually be a huge upgrade over Militao's on-ball capabilities on that side, so I wouldn't be surprised if Carlo ends up settling there and then just says, Militao, I'm sorry, buddy, fight for your spot. Um, which I don't have a problem with because I think Militao really dropped off the second half of the season, um, even though I, I think he's great and I really believe in his potential. So that's one. And then the other thing that no one has really considered is that we might see a back three. We might see a 3-4-3. Three, three. I mean, the question is, how do you make Mbappe and Vinny work together in that? But I wouldn't be surprised if for one game, Carlo is like, let's try Mendy at left center back. I agree with Keon. I think that's actually his best position. In a back three, I think Mendy is perfectly suited for that. We could see something like that. And then all of a sudden, the center back positions make a lot of sense, right? Alaba is the guy covering space in behind, Rudiger on the left, Militao on the right, and that's like a perfect back three system, right? So we'll have to see. Carlo is going to keep fiddling with it, I think, for like 35 games into the season before he settles on what he wants. And it'll be really interesting to see. But um, yeah, from a tactical perspective, I'm excited, but also a little bit anxious because it's not it's not a perfect fit. Yeah, the 3-4-3 three, three is interesting because we've even seen Furlan and did play it under Zidane very, very briefly. I think he actually played there against Chelsea last season, but uh, it was, in a weird way, it actually kind of masked some of his uh, on-ball deficiencies, Mendy from that position. But I, I actually was going to... And in a 3-4-3, three, three, Carvajal probably loses that the most, right? Because I don't know, unless you go with wide right wing backs, uh, I don't know if Carlos, I would assume, Fer would probably prefer someone like Fede there, but I'm not entirely sure. But uh, you kind of answered it wrong, but I was going to ask you, like, because everyone is talking about Rudiger and Alba, basically, because they both prefer the left side. But you would, would you say that 
from a pure from a pure ball progression standpoint, Rudiger and Alvar would be our best pairing, right? Militao would lose out in that situation. Is there anything that Militao has over Rudiger that you would like? If you just took Militao out of the team right now, put Rudiger in, ignoring the right side left side thing, is it an upgrade? I think it's an upgrade. I mean, I, I think Militao has another level to reach still that Rudiger is at right now. I mean, Rudiger with Tuchel has, has been a pretty consistent performer in terms of his level. The issues were with when he was playing with the back four and look, Lampard's system wasn't great. It was just a track meet every game. And that, like, with Rudiger's aggressiveness, he was getting exposed all the time. But, you know, if he plays in a system that has, I mean some coherence or some idea that's better than what Lampard was doing and I, I think he's an upgrade yeah I, I think he is there's not any individual thing that Militao does better than I can think of maybe he has an edge just by being having chemistry being used to what Real Madrid do that he could have an initial edge but I, I think Rudiger is just a better player at the moment I think Militao will get there but the way he dropped off the second half of the season was was concerning for me and it's very difficult to watch that and be like okay he's He's as good as someone like Rudiger, who I would put like just under the best center backs in the world. I mean, were you thinking about anything that he that Militao did better? No, that that's why I asked. I mean, and the, it's not. It, I could probably maybe even think of something that he might be better at, but I can't. But even if I did. There's one glaring thing that he's worse than Rudiger, and that's the passing. The ball carrying and the passing. And that's why I asked the question, because to me, yeah, Rudiger, is, Rudiger and Alba actually makes more sense of a pairing, ignoring the left side, right side thing, uh, than, Militao. So, than Militao and Alba. So I wonder, I don't know if Carlo will see it like that. Maybe Carlo will look at it well, like Militao and Alba as my center back pairing. And Rudiger will come in to help, but he's not going to start over with Maybe he sees it that way. I don't know, but thinking, and this is the first time I'm thinking about it. So I don't, I haven't thought too deeply about it, but talking about it with you right now, I think I think Rudiger and Alba would be our best center back pairing. To be honest. Last thing I want to say, people keep forgetting this because um, at Porto, uh, Militao plays right back as well as center back, and so when he played at, because he played at right back, people are like, Militao was a right center back. No, he was not. He came to Real Madrid as a left center back, and that he's had this. His main passing asset was the switch to the other side, which we lost now because he plays on the right. But it's worked out defensively. There hasn't really been a problem, so it's really not out of the question that we bring Rudiger over here, put him on the right. He adjusts, maybe loses one thing to his passing arsenal, but is otherwise fine. I, if I was forced to choose right now, I think that's the way it's going to turn out. But but who knows? I don't I don't know how Carlo thinks. No, Alright, this is the final question before we open the floor for uh, other questions. The final question is honestly one of the best questions I've ever read. How, but I don't have a name here, so hopefully you'll stand up. How would you tell someone who's a neutral to start following Real Madrid? Who asked this question? What was your name, bro? Art. Uh, Art. Art. Yeah. Art. Art. Full name? Art? Shukla. Art Shukla has the best question, bro. You, you honestly. So, Kian and Om, take it away. What is it about Real Madrid? Why should someone support Real Madrid? And why? Porque Real Madrid is the mejor club del mundo, no? Go for it. Kian, shoot. I just want to make sure I heard it correctly because I'm not sure if I did. Why Why would, how would you explain to someone why, why they should move to Real Madrid? 
support Real Madrid, yeah. That's that's the question? Yes, yes. Okay. Um, it's, uh, I mean, what, what do you, it's one of those things where it's like, we all feel it so deeply that sometimes verbalizing it is difficult, you know. Everyone thinks that their club is the best, but our club truly is the best. Like, it's not a subjective thing. It's in the trophies, it's in the aura, it's in the vibe. And uh, we won the most trophies. It's the most fun team. And, like, you look around, is anyone anyone in Europe joking as much as we do on the bench and having as much fun as we're doing, as, as we're having? Is there any atmosphere in Europe that is magical as the burn-down in European night? Um, it's... I don't really know how else to put it, but it's not only probably the greatest team in football, it's probably the greatest team in sports. And if you look at the pedigree, how long we've been around for, how long we've been doing this, how many stars have come and gone, how many stars want to come, you know, there's, there's no other way to put it, I don't think. It's just, it's one of those things that's tough to verbalize, but we all feel it, and we're all, you guys are all in this room because you feel it too, right? So sometimes you just gotta like, for a lot of people, like it's not even about the trophy. So a lot of people, like you ask why you came out of Jesus, it's some random thing. Like, oh, we were, we in the Chicago, we did this exercise and someone was like, well, I, I saw Real Madrid uh, come back against Mallorca on the final day of the season in 2007 and the crowd was going crazy. And I was like, this is amazing. I love this team. For someone else, it's, it was like for Sam Sharper, who was David Beckham, and he, he became a fan because of because of that. So for everyone, it's going to be a different reason, but there's always one connection we always have, whatever the, whatever the connection is that stuff that's in them. And once we're in, it's the portal, right? It's like we learn about how great it actually is. So I don't really have a, a good answer, to be honest. I just ramble, but I, it's just kind of a feeling. And then once you have the feeling and the connection, then you go in deeper, do deeper dives, and you realize, wow, I really did pick the best team. Yeah, I think what Keon was saying at the end is it, right? We just need to think about how did we become fans and just try to, like, engineer a situation for the person that you wanted to, like, brainwash, right? Like, I mean, I don't know, play people with them, give them Real Madrid, and they're like, oh, wow, I won with Real Madrid, now I'm a fan. I mean, like, that's actually how some people have become fans, right? But in for a more, like, serious answer, like, what is it, like, that captured your imagination when you first, like, got involved with Real Madrid? Maybe not even the first thing, but the moment where you're like, yeah, like, I feel something. So, for me, at least, it was watching, like, like the brilliant players, right? Seeing the things they could do on the pitch that was like, I want to see this every day. Like, show them a Vinicius Junior highlight comp. I'm not joking. Just be like, look at this guy. Look at the insane shit he does. Do you not want to see this every day? Show them what Benzema has done this season. Best of all, and you have to be careful, pick the right match watch a game with them. If they watched the Manchester City game second leg, they would be a Real Madrid fan right now, right? Pick, I mean, if you pick the classical, I, I mean, I don't know. So it, it's a bit risky. <laughs> it's a bit risky, right? But those are the types of moments where, like, it just grabs you, right? It just gets seared into your memory, and you're like, I want this feeling again, right? I want to feel this adrenaline. I want to feel the passion. I want to feel like I'm part of something, and then everything that happens from there is natural, right? You don't need, you can just sit back, let them find managing Madrid, let them listen to the podcast, let them leave the podcast because I start talking about tactics too much, right? Like, that'll all happen. You just need to find a way, like, to, to help them capture that moment, right? I mean, the most expensive way, but the most sure way to do it would be to take them to the Bernabeu and have them experience that, and then you have it set for life. Like, that'll, 
most, a lot of people I've heard who went to the Bernabeu was like their first moment, right? They were just tourists in Spain. They're like, let's check it out. They experienced it and they're like, wow, holy hell, right? So I, I, that's, that's how I would answer it. I, I don't think it's that difficult. I don't think you need to think about it too deeply. Just, you know, get this friend, watch a match, show them something, see how they react to it. And, and I think they'll take it from there. Yeah, that's one thing I'll add too is that that's a good point. I think if you're trying to persuade your friend or whoever just to join the army, going and telling them, hey, this is the best team, become a fan, is not going to work. But you have to think about how you became a fan. And once you remember how you became a fan, you got to put your friends in that position to experience something. Because being told like you got to support this club is never going to work because they don't no matter how great the club is, they don't really, it's not going to register for them, they won't care, but they have to experience the same feeling. You know, for me, it was, um, uh, my wife thought I was crazy, right, for, like, my whole life. She still thinks I'm crazy, but not as much as she used to. And when it changed for her was, we went to Madrid for La Decima, and obviously, Real Madrid, so the city's on fire, and uh, she was so into the game, we were watching the game, and... We were watching it in my friend's apartment, which overlooked the Bernabeu. And of course, inside the Bernabeu, the Bernabeu was packed that night because they're watching it on a screen while the game's going on in Lisbon. And we were all in so much pain. And then when Ramos scores, like, you could feel the city shaking. Like, I'm not kidding. It was shaking. The Bernabeu, like, it was, like, vibrating. And everyone was going crazy. Like, I just, I blocked out. It was unbelievable. And then we went to see Belas. It was, like, we were there till 5 a.m. The trophy came. The bus came. And then the next day, she was like, I get it. I understand. I'm, I I love this. And so, like me telling her about, like, hey, I just I watch these these dudes play football, and I love it. And uh, I don't care about anything as much as I love, I love that one thing. Uh, and she just thought it was crazy. But yeah, saying you love Real Madrid, Madrid more than her is not a joke. I didn't hear that. It's it's okay. You don't have to hear. We'll move on. <laughs> Yeah, but just so like you gotta experience, you gotta experience it. I think we answered that one well. Yeah, that was a good one. All right, I'm gonna open the floor now. Uh, I have a question though, but from Pravesh Jain. Pravesh Jain. Yeah, your question is a good question. Why don't you start? Then we come to you, bro. Just come, up, come up with this mic here and ask to introduce yourself. Say where you're from. Say how long you've been supporting Real Madrid. Who's your favorite player? All of that. Say hi to both of them and ask your question. Because the question was a good question. I, I'm sorry I missed it up, but you can ask it yourself. No worries. Hello. Hey, I'm Pravesh. I'm from Bangalore. Uh, came here for the podcast. Great energy. Thanks for doing this, Jitesh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All yeah. My question is uh, around Kareem Benzema. And uh, this unique thing, um, uh, at least in my watching football, this is something I'm seeing unique for the first time and I wanted to here, your opinion, if you've seen something like this before, where he is peaked at very, uh, he's peaked very late, and he's peaked really high. He's become basically the best player in the world at 34, and uh, although there have been other players who have peaked late, but they've uh, not gone this high. So I want to get your opinion, if you ever experienced any player doing the same. And as a follow-up to that, uh, there was also a time when most Real Madrid fans including myself, were about to give up on Benzema. That was around the 16-17 season, uh, where we were all just not sure if he will make it or we should continue with him. 
uh, but we uh, of course uh, he had a lot of backing from the club and that's uh, giving us rewards now uh, so my question around that is do you think there are there were any other players that had real madrid backed them longer would have gone on to become a big part of the club's history okay so uh, first question is a really good one and i think the fact that i'm blanking on it is uh a good example of like how rare this can be i would say maybe i could be off here because i don't know if i remember how old slatan is right now but i think he peaked like he peaked like 31 to 32 years old right? i mean he was good before but there was a kind of like a level of experience he gained without losing too much physically that gave him an advantage like technically you are a better footballer in a theoretical sense the older you get because you just get smarter you're able to manage the emotions better what you're losing is is physical stuff right and Benzema has not lost that much and it's not like that was the basis of his game in the first place he was quick but not generationally it was more about what is his touch like right how does he time his runs and, and the thing with Benzema's box impact is usually the guys who are in, well I don't know if I say usually but a lot of the guys who are great in the box are just so dominant physically right Lewandowski is a big guy good leap right and if if people get next to me can body them out of the way right but there's there's a positional aspect to it but it ronaldo one of the greatest freak athletes we've ever seen right he jumps higher than almost anyone else he's incredibly quick even at an old age over short distances right he can create separation with the defender benzema never really had that and so over time he had to develop a positional sense a timing of his runs that it, that which is going to keep getting better with time and as long as he didn't drop off in a huge way physically, right? It would allow him to possibly, you know, repeat again. I, I think part of it is that I don't think he's that much better than some of his best seasons. I think the difference is he's played way more and being way fitter than, than in, in seasons past. On a per 90 basis, his 15-16 season just blows everything out of the water. The guy was scoring a goal a game in La Liga. It was incredible. He just, he just got injured, like, a lot of those times, right? His 13-14 season was really good. His 11-12 season was incredible on a per-90 basis. This season, he's just played more than he ever has, and that's been the case since Ronaldo left. And he's also been more efficient than he ever has. Like, he's never been this efficient before. If, if someone told you that Karim Benzema would be arguably the best finisher in the world in 2018... You would have shot them and walked away. Like, I mean, like you, like what do you talk? Like, we need to imprison you. Like, you're a danger to society, right? Like, that kind of stuff. Like, it's hard to, I think, grasp that. Like, how much do we say is finishing variance? How much of that is Benzema? But yeah, it is. It is a strange one. Like, there's really not that many players, and I think it speaks to Benzema's professionalism. That was another thing he didn't have when he was younger. He didn't take care of his body that well. He learned that over time. So he prevented or stemmed a physical decline while keeping his mental sharpness, accepting a leadership role, getting smarter, and just manages the moments better than I've ever seen. So, yeah, it's, there's not that many players I can think of. Modric, I don't think, peaked when he was this old, but there was that same cycle, right? He dipped, he found a way to re-peak, and I think this will become more common with, with certain footballers. Maybe you can argue Di Stefano. He was good for so long, and when we won, started winning the back half of those Champions League titles, he was in his 30s, but... From what I understand, he was still at his best at 26, 27. Um, what was the other question? Was uh, oh, who who should Real Madrid have backed? I mean, Higuain is already in the folklore, but had we kept him, would have become an even better legend, right? 
forget what Messi fans say about him, right? He's a, he's, a, he's a brilliant striker. He was one of the best strikers of his generation, and he ended up having truly historic seasons at Napoli and Juventus that shattered goal-scoring records. It's a shame that he had to leave because I thought he was a perfect complement to Benzema. They were both able to do similar things, even though they weren't the same players. They both worked really well with Ronaldo, which is why Juve brought him back when Ronaldo went there. Higuain could have written a much greater story here at Real Madrid, but ultimately we kind of had to pick, and Higuain was like, if I'm not really wanted here, I'm going to leave. And, and that was fine. It was just something that had to happen. Um, but yeah, I I'm, I love Higuain. I mean, Benzema is my favorite Real Madrid striker in history, but I I don't I don't love it when people shit on the guy because it, it doesn't form a reality, right? Just because he misses chances for Messi doesn't make him a bad player. I'm sorry. I didn't hear the first question that well. I don't know if you can do a quick summary of it. Yeah, yeah. So basically it was like, have you seen another player who's peaked at kind of Benzema's age? Also, what was the name of the person who asked it? Pravesh Jain. Pravesh Jain. Pravesh Jain. Urim Jain? <laughs> Pravesh. P-R-A-V-E-S-H. Pravesh. I've seen him on Twitter a lot. I'm pretty sure you have. Okay. Yeah. No, the reason I ask is because I recognize the name, and I just wanted to say hi because I've also seen his name on Patreon and, and Twitter, so I wish I could have seen you in person, Pravesh, and uh, I just didn't hear you. I wasn't sure if it was you for sure, but I, yeah, I just want to confirmation. So thanks for coming up, buddy. He's coming up to the camera now. Patreon. Yeah. I, oh, hey, hey, buddy. Hey, no. Yeah, this is the first time I've seen a human in this. Hey, there's people over there. I don't know why. I don't know why I didn't ask for that. Soon. This is much better. Okay. Um, I have one for you. I'm surprised Wong didn't mention this, or maybe he didn't. I didn't hear it. But Ferry pushed us. Is oh yeah, that's that's the biggest one. It's actually a really good example. Go on. Yeah. So Pusha signed at the age of 31. He became, in what my opinion is, the third best player of all time in club history. And he never scored more than 30 goals in his whole career until he came to Real Madrid. 
But if Benzema wins the Champions League this year, let's say, what is that? Does that put him at five? That puts him at five, right? Five plus he is good. He's going to surpass Raul. He's level with Raul, right? Yeah. 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 But you know, he just like one more goal and got it. If he wins the Champions League, is there a conversation to put him ahead of Pushkas? I think there's so. If so, I don't know what to do with that information because Pushkas to me is the third best player in club history. I'm not sure. I have to really think about it, but it really tripped me up yesterday when I was thinking about it. Did it break your brain? <laughs> no, we're adjusting something on the audio. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought we were just in awe and shocked at my. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have any thoughts on that. I wasn't, I wasn't going to really add much more there. I mean, I. I think it's crazy that it's a conversation because even the most ardent Benzema supporter, and I was one of them, like I fought wars for the guy in like the 16, 17 season. We had one guy who would just every single, was he emailing us, messaging us? He's like, Benzema can't finish, just relentlessly, just messaging us. It's like, all right, man. And like the 17, 18 season was- us as if it was us missing Right, and, and like it became a meme, right? Like people would mock us for, for talking about his link up play, right? And so 17-18 was, was terrible, right? And that's kind of when I was like, look, if it's going to be this bad, I, we have to face reality, right? And the way he was able to turn it around, I think, is one of the greatest stories of like just pure sporting mental strength because everyone hated him at that point. And people also forget that to start 2019 or 2018-19, he was shit. He didn't play well under Lopetegui. And if you go back and look at his numbers, they were really bad. And then something happened in 2019 where he was like, no one else is stepping up. Asensio is like, no, I don't want the number seven, please. Mariano, when he's like, yeah, I'll take the number seven, why not? And, and Benzema is like, all right, screw this. Bale is not stepping up. I got to be the guy. And something happened within those weeks after that first half of the season under Solari where it just changed me. He never looked back. And um, yeah, after I, I never would have guessed it. I thought it was done. You know, I, I knew he wouldn't be as bad as 17-18. I did not think he'd be in the Ballon d'Or conversation. I didn't think he would have surpassed Raul. I don't think he would be in conversations with Pushkas right now. I mean, it's crazy. Like, we really are talking about, you know, Di Stefano Pushkas 1-2, Ronaldo Benzema 1-2, both in conversations for the one spot and the two spot. I mean, that's crazy. And it tells you the, the era we've been in. 17-18, which was the peak of the vitriol towards Benzema, where he was, as you said, terrible. X, XG, 10, 5 goals. And th- oh, two were penalties that Ronaldo gave him to boost his confidence. <laughs> that's amazing number. I mean, I, that's crazy. Um, by the way, I can hear you like 100 times better now, so whatever you did, thank you. <laughs> I was like, I didn't know, I was so hard to hear you before, but I can hear you now. Right. Thanks to our audio guy who's like, yeah. why am I here listening to this? <laughs> Thank you to the audio guy. Uh, the guy, yeah, just come up to this mic and just ask you a question. First, introduce yourself, where you're from, how long you support Real Madrid, and yeah. Okay. Video me dikhega tabhi. Nahi, nahi, nahi. Ye You can, you can come and stand after you, or okay. Yeah, so, uh, hey, Om, uh, I think you know me, I'm Pasho. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, hey, Kian, I think you know me too, I'm Pasho. But yeah, uh, it's great to be interacting with you guys again. And uh, I'm from Mumbai. And uh, just a second. My I, 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 I
<laughs> yeah, that's the greatest achievement of this year that you have seen me. And uh, now uh, I have a few questions. First of all, uh, uh, since uh, Vin Vinicius Junior will be getting his European passport, uh, that leaves us with one space in the team for a non-EU spot. Uh, the other two being occupied by Rodrigo and Militao. So I have been wondering in the past few days, what if Rainier Jesus becomes the backup to Benzema? Because uh, during his days in Brazil, he he used to play as a centre forward, as a false nine. He's uh, good in the air. He is good when he links up and. Uh, I think I can see some potential in him to be a good number 9 or a false 9. So, uh, rather than him getting his talents wasted elsewhere, and we are on the look for uh, a striker, four strikers according to Marka's recent report, but if we have someone on our books, why not utilize him? Uh, so, okay. Uh, I think I'll be most of this Kian because he's the guy who does the loan track and stuff, but just to confirm, you do Feminino coverage for the real champs, right? Yes. Yeah, okay, cool. Thank so you. I, I've seen your stuff, I, I appreciate that. It's like you, me, Grant, and Yash Sakur, and like no one else. Um, so yeah, I appreciate you, brother. I mean, Kian, you have thoughts on Rainier? Is it possible you can just uh, summarize the question for me because I'm having trouble hearing that one? Yeah, basically, basically he's like, um, why not use Rainier as the backup to Benzema? Um, and he said something about how he thinks he'd be a good false nine, a good striker, good in the air. And, and basically, if we're struggling to find other options, why don't we just go ahead and use him? What would be, you know, the drawbacks to that, or what would be the potential positives? Got it. Yeah, I think the biggest barrier to that is that not necessarily that he might not be able to play that role, but it's that he just needs to play at this stage of his career. And being the back to Benzema right now is like being the backup to. Uh, Someone who's just infallible and just won't be like, like, a, like the president of the United States. You need to assassinate him, or he's not going to start. <laughs> well, that's pretty dark. But like, it's, it's it's a position that is really hard to be backup. In, in my opinion, you don't you just don't have a backup. I, I think you shouldn't have a Benzema backup because what's the point? Just a player to stop his whole career. And Rainier is coming off of like two years of not playing. He needs to go somewhere to play consistently, get good, and then maybe we can talk. And um, it, but but he's a he's a very interesting prospect, but he just can't play that role right now. Uh, Benzema's backup next year is going to be Mbappe. It's just going to be Mbappe playing, and then just insert Rodrigo was one of the wingers, and it, I think that's how it solves. Because I don't think there's a, another way to spin it. Like, what are you going to do? Bring in a backup striker who's not going to play? That, that's where I struggle with it. So I think Rainier is good, but I just don't see the point, to be honest. Yeah, I think Mayoral is a good example of like what can happen when you do that. I mean, he, he was very similar to Benzema's style. I mean, really highly rated. I mean, we all liked him a lot, and his career just stalled. Like, it didn't work out, and he's, he's playing okay now elsewhere. But I think you can do it, but it's going to last, like, one year, and they're like, I need to get out of here, unless you're, like, Mariano, who just, like, loves it. He's like, I, I, I get paid. I got the number seven jersey at one point, loving life. Like, most of them are, are, are going to want something else, and... I don't. Maybe it will appeal to him, but I don't know if, from a football perspective, he really enjoys his football. Rainy is like another season without playing. Like, must be tough. And I, I don't know how confident I am. Anyone who doesn't play that long can just step up and replace Benzema. And we see him play for ten minutes, and everyone's like, "Oh, this guy is shit. Get him out of here!" Right? Like, it, it won't be fair to him, and, and it's really tough. And I agree with Kian. Actually, I think rotating Mbappe into the center forward position is probably the way it's going to work. 
And uh, just uh, another quick question. Uh, one question. Sanket, ask, ask a question. Sorry, Thank you. Thank you. Oh. Hello. Uh, my name is Sanket and I'm from Mumbai. Uh, so my question is, as Omar Bia mentioned that uh, Florentino Perez has been uh, bringing coaches, you know, bringing players and bringing city coaches. So is there, uh, is there going to be a project for us? Is it possible for us to bring a uh, coach like Klopp or someone like Pep Guardiola and build our team around that, like a project for uh, with uh, with the best coach in the world. Yeah. Okay. First of all, shitty coach is a bit harsh, you know? <laughs> but I, I think it is. I think it is possible. Um, it's it's just like so. The thing is, right? It's like Real Madrid or Florentino just takes whoever's available, right? Like we've been linked to Pochettino, which I don't know how you guys feel about him now, but at the time, like a lot of us really liked the fit. He's certainly considered to be one of the top tactical managers. Whether you think you know he is the top or, or should be rated lower. We've also been linked to Nagelsmann quite a bit. I don't think Florentino has anything against that. I don't think Florentino cares, right? I think he just, who is considered to be a good coach, who has a good reputation, and are you available? And most of the time, the timing has not necessarily matched up. And we haven't gone out of our way to go get these guys. So I think there's very much a world where, you know, if we time up the contract expirations, like Carlo retires when Nagelsmann gets free from Bayern, I think there's a high possibility we go out and get him. It's just that that's not our focus, and so it's not going to be a guarantee. Like, there could be... We can continue going on without getting these managers because I don't think Florentino considers one, like, immensely superior than the other. Like, he doesn't have a particular way he wants the squad to be managed. He just wants it to be managed. He's like, I'm going to give you the players, figure it out, right? So I think there's certainly a possibility. It's just that we're not going to go out and chase it. Like other clubs. Again, we're Real Madrid, right? Like, why do we need to do that? Yeah, I think that's correct. I think the way you put it in terms of managers on the priority is the correct way to put it in terms of how Real Madrid sees it. It's going to be down to timing. And I mean, the exception to this is probably Mourinho. Like, at that time, they were like going to go out of their way because they had the stars, they had everything they needed in the squad, and they needed someone to come in and give the team confidence and compete with Barca. But other than that, it's going to come down to timing. Like, Allegri was nearly a Real Madrid coach. Um, he said this multiple times, right? He said, I pretty much signed the contract, but then Juve was an option last minute, and I'm sorry, Florentino, I'm going back. Um, it could have very easily been, been him. Um, it could have been Raul if we didn't find any way. It'll come down to timing and stuff. So I think if Klopp is available, for example, and he wants to come to Real Madrid and the timing works out that we don't have a coach, I don't see why we wouldn't give him a chance, to be honest. Uh, the next question by <coughs> eight question. That's not good. Email question number Hello, hello, Kyo. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I'm an Arsenal fan. Question, push, question, push. I've just come to appreciate my friend on what he's doing and what my friend now my my discharge achieved in Mumbai. Question. So there were four four things which I don't agree with uh, because the the most being you missed out on Divo Origi. That's why yeah. that's why I was disappointed because he was one of the one of the guys who gave you the most satisfaction at the four near Barca earlier pool game. So my question is, my question is, I have just a technical analysis about the final, UCL final. You know clearly that you are the underdogs in the final. When the analysis come into play, so I'm, 
आई थिंक सो कि यू शुड टेक दिस इन टू अकाउंट दैट यू आर द कम बैक किंग्स ऑफ यूरोप दिस सीजन सो द बेस्ट चांस फॉर लिवरपूल बींग सेवेंटी मिनिट्स आइडियली जीरो जीरो स्कोर वुड बी द बेस्ट फॉर यू गाइज वे इवेंचुअली आफ्टर सेवेंटी मिनिट्स राइटर यू विट कम इन टू प्ले सो दैट वुड बी प्लेइंग इन टू लिवरपूल प्लेयर्स माइंड क्या कम बैक किंग हैज अराइव सो दे विल पुट डे गार्ड्स डाउन Just what so what I you're think. saying is we have a chance right in front of goal in the first minute. We should miss it. The <laughs> <laughs> only chance, your only chance is if the seventy seventy minutes, if the score is nil. Other than that, I don't see any chance of Real Madrid winning this final. The Liverpool is a pretty dominant team. Now that you said this, we're gonna win. We're gonna yeah. win like six nil now or something. I look at my favorite part of this was that there was no question in the end. <laughs> <laughs> माने वाइज इन कमिंग टू प्ले फॉर द आफ्रिका कप ऑफ नेशन आइडियली वट हैपन्स इज इंटरनेशनल ट्रॉफीज कम इन टू प्ले योर योर प्लेयर्स आर द एग्जाम्पल मॉडल वॉज गिव इन दैलेंड योर Just for he to Croatia to the final. Yeah, but European competition and African competition are slightly different. See, I wanted that. But the world series is going to be the second highest. It's going to be already your goal. This is the main discussion in European football right now. That yeah. African players are being treated like racist. Huh. African no, competitions. Maybe true, but it's also the level of football actually. So no, no. no. I, I, Thank I, you very much. You will come. Will you come? Up. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, bye. Thanks so much. Hey guys, my name is Ubin. I've actually been a fan since 2002. Um, so my question is one of the biggest problems we've had this season. I think we can all agree has been Casemiro. Um, he's not had a great season. Now going forward, would you think we need a direct replacement or look to have a backup to push him? Because right now he's where he is because of the attributes he offers. I don't think anyone else in our squad can offer that. So what do you think on that? I love you. Like everyone agrees, the guy behind you is shaking his head. Like I don't know about that. Um, yeah, Casemiro has always been one of the more polarizing figures because he has such like a dichotomous style of playing. And I mean, we've certainly like critiqued um, some of his weaknesses. I think the thing with him is like we need to find a way to stop over relying on him to provide the defensive solidity, right? Whether that's as a team, which I just don't think is going to happen under Carlo, or with someone else, and we don't have that player, right? Because Look, Casemiro always have his weaknesses, but I think the underrated thing is because we say he's a tank all the time, right? He's indestructible. He's not. He gets tired. He gets overplayed. He's been overplayed for so long now, and that's going to contribute to these lapses in concentration, these giveaways when he's more prone to them than than other players, right? Like I've seen some Casemiro stretches, and it's always closer to the beginning of the season where I look at the six game stretch and I'm like, how is this guy playing? And then he always recovers and he comes up, usually comes up big in, in big games when we need him, but. That's happening because he just doesn't get any rest, and that's going to affect you. And I, I, I think that for me, at least, given where I believe Casemiro's level can be right now, he's like 30 years old. I don't think he's done. He's too important to the squad. I think the players respect him too much. I think he has honestly a position within the team where he's almost undroppable. Like the players respect him that much. But so, so I wouldn't. I don't think there's any like you know. I don't. I, I don't know if I desire it. I don't think there's any um, you know possible way that we're just going to like. All right, Casemiro, bye. We'll bring someone else in, right? I think it's if you get someone like Chumani, right? 
you can legitimately, I, I don't know if Carlos would do it, but I, I, I would rotate with the zero problems. I'm not going to be like, will the defensive solidity be bad? Kamavinga is not really a number six, so is this going to show many can play other positions, but in my opinion, you put him as a single pivot, there are no issues, right? He's really good defensively. He defends in a less aggressive style than Kamavinga. He's more like Casemiro in the way he plays, and his distribution is fine out of the back. Like, he's a bit better than Casemiro on the ball when it comes to, like, pressure distance and stuff like that. I think that's the way to go about it. The trouble then becomes, can you keep those guys happy? So, I don't know. It, I, I mean, I don't keep track of rumors as much as other people because, to be honest, it doesn't interest me, like, as much. Um, so, Keon would know. But it kind of felt like the interest in Shulman, he died for a bit, right? So, I would not be surprised if we just went into next season exact same thing and we're going to see the same ups and downs and I don't think it's all on Casemiro I think that's really important I think you go and look back the amount of minutes he played Matt should uh, did you write the article on Casemiro or was it Benzema it was Benzema right it was the, minutes, Benzema. the one Ray Hudson says in the intro of our podcast every time right? you should go and write an article about Casemiro and how he's been overplayed because I think that's a big problem right like it is weird that his most consistent season was the 15-16 season that is strange because he's become a better player since then. And so, yeah, I mean, I made my point, so I'll just transfer it over to Keon now. Well, to elaborate on the dichotomy you were speaking of, the dichotomy is that <coughs> um, he's been a liability in our Champions League exit to get Manchester City, Chelsea, and Ajax. And he was, uh, a, you know, he's been a liability even in the run up to this final one because he's not precious and he's not good on the ball. But the dichotomy is that he also was desperately needed against Manchester City in the second leg, and he was part of the reason why we started to track runners all of a sudden and were able to stabilize ourselves. Um, I think he's also the reason he's been needed over the years is because of the way Real want to play. They don't play like a normal team. They invite chaos, right? They they like the chaos. If you want someone to put out fires, you kind of need Casemiro. Ideally, you want Casemiro to be who he is defensively, who is, which he is one of the best ball winners in Europe, if not the best ball winner in Europe. Plus, you want him to be good on the ball, which he's not as good as. Um, the Chuomeni point is, if you've been listening to this podcast for a long time, you know that we love Chuomeni. We would love to sign him because he actually solves a lot of those problems because he's great on the ball. He's press resistant. Um, I think the argument has always been, well, we're worried that we sign him and maybe he doesn't play, he gets his development stalled, you know, he's too good to be on the bench, will we'll Carlos trust him? To be quite honest with you, Carlos changed my opinion of him in the last month or so. He's been rotating more. Like a true many takes the Kamavinga arc, where at first he's not um, a huge part of the team, but he becomes a really important player and works his way into the team. That's not a terrible scenario to me. I also think Carlos changed a little bit. I also think, Car- like, even today, we, Carlo had a press conference just before this podcast. So uh, there's a good chance none of you guys have seen that. But he spoke a lot about next season, there's going to be lots of rotations because he was talking about Hazard. He said Hazard's going to stay. So whether you want Hazard to stay, that's another discussion for another day. But his point he was making was like Ceballos and all these guys. These guys are going to get rotated in. Kamavinga's going to play more minutes next season. So if his rotations are better next season, then I'd be fine with it. Um, so the Casemiro dichotomy is what it is, and I think Chuomeni would be a, a great sign to, to solve that issue, especially moving forward. Last thing I'll say is, because um, I, I agree with Keon's point, like if there are more rotations and Chuomeni can take on that role, the fans would have to be more patient because Chuomeni is not the guy who's going to give you the big moments. Let's be honest, the reason people notice Kamavinga and they like him is because he's contributing to goals. That's not really what he does on a consistent basis. It's suited the way he's played for Real Madrid, but when he starts or whenever he becomes a starter, 
He's not going to give you 15 goals and 15 assists in a season. He'll give you maybe five goals and four assists in a season, like the moments we've seen. But minute-on-minute impact is going to be how can he continue to evolve ball progression-wise, and then his defense, which is his greatest asset in the first place. True many is way more oriented towards the defense and, and, and subtle things on the ball. Like, he's not going to come in and, I mean, he's going to do this now, now that I said this, but he's not going to come in and make these incredible runs and passes that Kamenga is making in the final third, and everyone will notice him off the bench, right? He could come on, recycle the ball really well, make two important challenges, and people are going to be like, okay, like, why, why not just start Casemiro, right? So, I don't know if that's really an issue. It's pro- it's something to think about, though, if that's the role he ends up taking. You can't judge him the same way that Kamenga is being judged. Thanks, guys. All right. Uh, I'm going to move to our sister Pena. They've come all the way from Bangladesh. I'm just a quick personal note. I've known Sifa for three years, and they celebrated their second year anniversary. So, from a happy anniversary to our brothers from Bangladesh. <laughs> and when Sifa reached out to me, I'm just giving you this backstory, Kian, so you know how tight Brown Marine He's going to ask me to summarize this, so keep it short. Oh, okay. <laughs> Basically, we're quite tight. It doesn't matter where you're from. And when Sifa reached out to me, he was just a, just a normal person on the internet, and we helped them sort of get past uh, the hurdle of being a Pena. So we have one more uh, Pena in, um, in Southeast Asia, and one more location, hopefully, for your next trip. Did you hear that? <coughs> All right, come, Rifat, come ask your question. Okay. Rifat, we're good. What about you? Yeah, uh, I'm Rifat from Peña Madrid, Bangladesh, and I also work for the for regular postcards by Peña Madrid, Bangladesh, which is 9248. But uh, unfortunately, it is in Bengali, so you might not understand this. Uh, anyways, Kian uh, might know uh, one of the persons from Peña Madrid, Bangladesh, Mehdi Hassan Prangan. Uh, yeah, uh, he is also a regular uh, regular guest of our program. So, anyways, I'm diving into my question. But uh, before this, Zidesh, uh, uh, I allowed everyone to ask only a single question, but I will ask two. Since I am coming from a long, I am asking that benefit. Oh, <laughs> no, I didn't know. Go ahead, go ahead. Okay, okay. So, the, my, my first question is uh, we are talking about UCL uh, final, about the so many tactical things. But I didn't find anyone talking about Isco. This season, that much time he had played, he had been good, and in my opinion. But what do you think about him? The, and the second question, I'm asking, asking both in the same, same time, that uh, how long do you want Carlo to coach our team? Provided that our team, some people are asking that we need a tactical transition uh, satisfying the current demand of football. And on the other hand, Real Madrid needs a figure who can actually manage the, manage the team than the tactics. Yeah, okay, in terms of Isco, I mean, it doesn't seem like people like Isco here, but <laughs> Kian and I have been pretty positive about the cameos he's made. Like, I, we, we, we had a, a long discussion on one of the podcasts where we talked about why did it not work out for Isco, and ultimately, like, there has to be something behind the scenes, right? Because, I, I mean, when I watch him play, and I watch him play this season, it's not, like, out-of-this-world stuff, but it's good. It's solid. He's making good contributions on the ball. He's doing what he needs to do when he comes on. And I just think when we were in a period where we needed midfielders to rotate, from pure footballing sense, I'm like, I don't understand why Isco can't get 30 minutes here. And it's not like we were putting Ceballos in at that point. There is something probably behind the scenes, right? When multiple managers have had issues with the guy and is not playing him... I, I think it probably says something. I mean, we, we, we talked about it, so we don't need to get into it too much, but that's how I feel about the situation, right? 
there's a pure footballing aspect where I think he can continue to be a really useful guy. I think as he's evolved, he provides things similar to Kroos. I mean, the passing range is not the same, but the tempo he plays at, the press resistance, he could be a decent option. But if there are personal issues, which I'm not saying I know definitively, I'm just saying there may be, then I, I think that kind of like, it, it wraps up his career at Madrid for him by himself, right? And in terms of the second point, the second question you asked, um, my answer would be time up the contract with whenever Nagelsmann leaves Bayern, right? Like Carlos says, I want to be here as long as possible and I'll probably retire at Madrid. So let Carlo have his last couple of years here. I think with Mbappe coming, there are not that many. Like, who are the options right now? Pochettino, like, would be the or maybe the only guy who, if he could go for right now, everyone else you consider to be like a top manager is locked up, right? So let Carlos see out the, the end of his reign, right? Let him hopefully go out on a high and then transition to, you know, who would we want next? Like, this is actually a really good opportunity for us to, like, plan for the future for a manager in a way that we haven't. Now, it might get screwed, right? If we play badly next season, Florentino's like, I gotta sack you. Like, as if he's being forced to make that decision and he's not in control of it. But that's honestly what I do. Like, I have, as I said before, weirdly enough, I have more problems with Carlo, the worse our team is. But you add someone like Mbappe, like, I'm, I'm cool with that. I mean, I'll continue to be like, the pressing is, is not great, but I can live with it. I think we'll we'll be good enough and then go after Nagelsmann when he's really some high highest strategy. Yeah, I mean, you kind of said it all because I was going to bring up a counter to that. Like, if you want to let Ancelotti retire, like after a couple years or whatever, split a time with Nagelsmann, however you want to time it, the challenge is always going to be, well, Florentino will just get rid of him and just go shit hits the fan and the team troubles, right? But Zidane will come back again. But even then, it, it'll be. Yeah, I personally also want this because I'm a very blind fan of Zidane. Yeah. Yeah. Continue. Well, no, I've just been saying like it, it's it's really impossible to time these things because let's say like oh, if Carlo gets sacked, and then you could say okay, we'll bring in Raúl until we can get our tactician. What happens if all of a sudden Raúl becomes a revelation and and takes the team to new heights? And then all of a sudden, um, you know, the, the plans can change, right? I don't think Zidane was supposed to be the permanent guy when he took for Benitez, but he was so good that we just kept him. So again, this comes down to timing. So I don't, I, but I don't have too much to add to that. I will say about Isco, the only thing I had to add is that I don't think he's been as bad on the field to banish him the way he has been banished. So it must be a behind-the-scenes thing. We, don't, we do know that Isco has had problems with various coaches. From what I know also, in terms of people who know the locker room well, Isco is not the the most humble person in the locker room, and there's, there has been problems there. And also, um, but also, just from a football side of things, there have been games where Cruz and Waters haven't played at all, like neither of them have been on the field this season, and I think Isco would have helped our ball progression a lot for reasons I've all mentioned. So it's kind of a weird one. Um, I, I assume that if he goes to Betis or Sevilla or wherever he goes next season, I think he'll, he'll be a good player. Yeah, I really thanks want to. For, thanks for making the trip, by the way. That's, that's amazing. Thank you, everyone from from Bangladesh to, to who came out. Uh, amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I just wanted to say I'd love to see Isco at Sevilla. I'd just love to see Isco anywhere else. Okay, uh, we're going to wrap it up. Thank you so much. But listen, before you go, Kian, what's your prediction for the final? Uh, both. What's the, yeah? What's the, what's the, Score going to be like, and same for you. Oh. I'm going to say 3 1 for Real Madrid. Wow, nice. And who's going to score? 
I mean, the only two guys. Well, whoever, whoever the black magic god sent us that day. <laughs> I don't care. Who wants? I think Mane is going to open the scoring for Liverpool. I think Benzema will equalize, and then Rodrigo will score at the death 2-1. Thank you for coming out tonight. Have a good night. Take care. Hala Madrid, Sibren. Hala Madrid. Sports Social Podcast Network.